That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that breaches the nostalgia vault of the most radical decade to unearth those treasures we forgot we loved so much. The movies, the toys, the games, the shows, the music, even the syndicated network specials, and more. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. Ben... I'm really jazzed about today. Hey, see? Hey there, Chris. See? How's it going? See? <laughs> Rat-a-tat-tat, Christopher. I got Let's my Tommy got. gun. See? I got my pinstripe <laughs> suit on. This is... I'm so fascinated by this pick. This is going to be a wild ride. It's going to be wild, and um, this little gangster mobile can't be on the road unless we call in our third hench person to join our gang here. See the eighties high gang. Uh, you know her, you love her. Uh, she was on our episode. Oh gosh, it's been too long. You were on our episode for it way back at the beginning of season two. Uh, but Allison Dixon is back to join us on this gangster filled sensationalistic night of live television. Allison, welcome back. <laughs> well, Hey there fellas. <laughs> I mean, you kind of took my gangster opening. I was kind of thinking about it all day. Uh, like, yeah, kids, oh no. you're never going to stop me with my Tommy gun. Yeah. Yeah. So got to love it. Oh, my gosh. I love, I love that you just uh, referenced that this is like a, a live event. Can you imagine if we recorded it? In true spirit of what our topic is, if oh. we recorded this live with almost no preparation, this oh would have been God. really fun. This would have been really fascinating oh. tonight. Is fun the right word? <laughs> would it have been good to listen to? I don't like think we would have been as slick as Geraldo. Oh <laughs> it's just people hearing us Google stuff over and over again. It'd be way more fun than Geraldo had that night. We'll just say Yeah. That. I mean, yeah. well, before, yeah, okay, we don't want to get too far yeah, into right, it. Whoa, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, we're getting out of ourselves, everybody, because we're still in homeroom. And, you know, we always like to talk about any 80s nostalgia we may have revisited uh, since last we spoke. Ben, is there anything top of mind, top of experience you have for us? I do have. It's been a big 80s movie fiesta in my home the last few oh. weeks. And, and we'll, we'll bat this around a little bit. So I'll go one and we'll we'll go through a, a circle here. But with our Steven Spielberg episode, I did just finish watching The Fablemans, oh, which I actually do highly recommend. It was very nice. It was, it was a great film. Uh, very sweet, very touching. I don't know how much of it is real, but we know it's based on a true story. Uh, and it's all very moving from whatever it is. Great movie. Highly recommend. Agreed. That's great. I, it's on my list. I would like to watch it. Did you, is it streaming somewhere? Uh, no, no. I went, oh, I went okay. old school from the library is where we checked oh, it out from. Legit. Yeah. Put you in the library. Nice. Yeah. Right? Sweet. That's great. The other movie one, and I'll save the one for a little bit later. I did just, it just came out streaming on Amazon Prime. Air came out. Good movie. Which is the story of getting oh, Michael Jordan to sign for, uh, yes. with Nike for their Jordans. And it, yes, exactly. Allison, it is awesome. Uh, you know, it's got Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, but it's set in 1984 and they do a mm. great job of like putting in the background all these pop culture things that are going on in the early 80s. And it's just a really good like, not only is it a great movie and a story, but a great like nostalgia trip. Oh, yeah. Romp uh, through the early 80s. The soundtrack is stellar. Oh, stellar. so good. Yeah. 
You guys, it's hype. I'm, I'm so excited. Let's just shut this down so I can go watch it right now. <laughs> no, it's solid. That's um, been 80s Eye, everybody. Good day. Uh, Allison, you said you said you had a brush with the 80s recently. Yeah, what I you got did. for us? Yeah, for the um, sort of the spirit of what we're going to talk about today, I decided to revisit the Brian De Palma directed classic starring Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, and Robert De Niro, Ooh. The Untouchables. Um, yeah. yeah, we got some Elliot Ness. We have some Al Capone. We have some gangster action. Such a good movie. Now, wait, who's Elliot Ness in the movie? Because it's it's Robert Stack in the television show, yes. right? Yes. Uh, Elliot Ness is played by Kevin Costner. Uh, it yeah. is Kevin. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was thinking Kevin, but I was like, is that right? Yeah, okay, okay. it's a great flick. And De Palma's movies are awesome. There's so many good ones. I also recommend uh, Blowout is another really great De Palma movie. Uh, Scarface he made. I don't care for that one, which is funny. Well, well, we might brush. But it is an Al Capone movie, it, right? Kind of. Kind <laughs> of. Inspired kind of in a way. Yes. A little bit. Yes. Kind of. know, right? It is, but it, it is. is. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but yeah, it's it's such a good movie and highly recommend it holds up beautifully despite, you know, being made in 1987. So uh, go key nice. that bad boy up, y'all. Love it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep the movie theme just circulating Great. here so because, good. you know, I think it's on our last episode, Ben, you had said, hey, they're coming out with a sequel. Beetlejuice 2 yes. is coming out. Uh, Undead Boogaloo. Uh, that's the confirmed <laughs> subtitle. God, I hope so. That would be amazing. But Beetlejuice 2 is coming out. And at that point, you were like, all I know is that, of course, we get the return of Michael Keaton. Yes. And we were speculating on who else might be in the movie. And yeah. I think since then, we've gotten a few more names attached. Yeah. Oh, so reprising their roles. This. this is great. Winona Ryder and Catherine <laughs> yes. O'Hara indeed are coming back, which so is super good. exciting. Oh, so good. Now, nothing yet about Alec or Gina, but I low-key want them to have just like a cameo in the movie. Just like a great. little pop in, right? Yeah. Like that would be like, awesome. If they're like waiting in the waiting room in the exactly. death area, it would something be really good. Fun like with that. like how they died or something. Exactly. There's a, there's a couple other names coming up, which are pretty crazy. So uh, Jenna Ortega is in it. She plays Wednesday in the most yeah, uh, recent nice. Netflix um, yeah. show. But also we get Willem Dafoe. I'm so excited. Oh, What? I love this I, pick. Well, I'm automatically signed on if he's in it. I yeah, mean, I'm, I just... always, I'm always down to Dafoe. I'm always yes. and then, <laughs> Dat no. Dafoe, though. And then, of course, it wouldn't be a Tim Burton flick without his partner in crime. Frickin' Johnny Depp is also going to be in this thing. Uh, oh, I haven't seen that. That's cool. Listen, I'm not automatically against Johnny Depp, but like... Burton, Timmy, you can you can do a movie without your boo. And also, like, do we need to see him as another kooky, wacky, somewhat undead character? Well, I don't here, know. Here's I the don't thing. Uh, he was married, Tim Burton and Helena Bottom Carter, who was his yeah. muse for a number of years, were married. Yeah, and right. they've since separated. She's no longer in the picture or pictures, as the mm-hmm. case may be. So mm-hmm. you got to bring whatever boo you can. I guess to, it's a side bay. Cast. And he's got the <laughs> Bring a side bay back, little, little <laughs> yeah. Johnny Depp. So anyway, I'm very excited about those names. It's uh, it's lining up to be, I don't know, maybe yeah. it'll be I'm good. I'm thrilled by that cast. Yeah, well, I'm excited. I'm Obviously, down. we're going to have to wait a bit for this to come out. But, you know, super exciting. Ben, you had more to share? I'm just nervous. I have one last thing to share. Homeroom. Okay. Oh, my God. I have probably the most controversial thing I've ever said on 80s High. Oh, and I'm about to drop wow. it right you've here said in some, You've dropped some controversy bombs. I know. We're coming near the end of the school year. And like it's, you're in that mood of like, I don't care. Summer's around the corner. I know what I did on my SATs. Like, it's, you know, whatever. It's all gone now. 
So I got this treasure trove of movies off of Buy Nothing, going through all these, and found an iconic classic from the 80s that was not in my collection, and we immediately had to watch it. Okay. None other than 1984's Sixteen Candles. <gasps> oh, jeez. Oh, John Hughes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, and I was like, oh, you know what? And this is terrible. I'm going to lose some cred here as a, a podcast host of an 80s variety show. I'm not sure I've ever seen Sixteen Candles all the way through. Yeah, sure, yeah. Sure. There are some parts that don't age as well, but it, there are some good moments in it too. And Allison, that's a lovely tee up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, was, <laughs> I knew I had a feeling where you were going, my friend. <laughs> and you know, like for having not seen it but being aware of eighties pop culture as we are, like Sixteen Candles is like the high school drama movie of the eighties, one of many, like in the very top tier up there with you know Ferris Bueller's and um, Breakfast Club and those kind of things. There is no topic, Chris, you and I have covered on 80s High that does not hold up as poorly as 16 Candles. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can imagine your contemporary Holy culture. Cow. Yeah. It will be enough. I mean, you're absolutely right. There there are so many things in it that don't hold up. And look, yeah. I know I know, we just lost some <laughs> listeners who are like, That's, uh, that is my golden horse. Don't you dare. And I'm like... Here's and I don't want to get like really negative in the details of why it doesn't. Everything that we would usually check a box to review, like does this hold up? It fails them all. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you're like, no, never go watch the movie and tell me this movie could possibly be made today in its right. current. No freaking way whatsoever. And Allison, to your point, it's funny. There are some great moments in it. Generally, the idea of the romance and trying to fit in, like whatever, that's all good. But man. Holy, no. every 10 minutes you're like, no, they did not Some just Some moments do that. just make you really uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. I would say like with John Hughes's high school flicks, yeah, Breakfast Club holds up great. Pretty in Pink still works. Yeah. 16 Candles for some reason still is the most iconic oh, and yeah. it needs to just not Holy, it needs be. to not. It needs to not be. <laughs> it needs to it not. It needs to not. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, now that I've totally alienated half our listership, I'll pass the mic back and keep my mouth Send closed. Send all of your hate-fueled messages to <laughs> 80sipodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Tell Ben what a hobgoblin monster assassin of joy he is but if you're on board with us you know go check out buy me a coffee chris what's it called where where can people donate coffee.com everybody ko-fi.com 80s high is on there if you love us and you want to give us a little lunch money give us your lunch money see i got this here tommy gun before i stuff you in a locker (laughs) yeah yeah exactly it's the beginning of the day we're already excited we're we're here in homeroom we're having a, a good old time but the bell's gotta ring and um, I have to tell y'all, I found this old blueprint of the school. And according to my seismic readings, it suggests there's a sealed chamber beneath us. And I bet if we grab these sledgehammers, we can bust our way into this historic vault to find out how this television special came to be and who were the key figures who made it possible. I love it. All right, guys, let's go. Start digging. Go, go, go. <laughs> Mr. Melvin, the janitor, uh, please report to stairwell B. Uh, student Benjamin is stuck in wall three, corridor four. Thank you, uh, Mr. Melvin. Sorry, you can't bust a few vaults without losing an excavator or two. Oh, so, good you know. luck. Oh, God, yeah. guys, uh, uh, I'm here. I, I, obviously, the very good homework was done on these blueprints, but it seems actually it was done by a dog with a dousing rod, and uh, real <laughs> research hadn't been done. I got turned around. 
Not since baby Jessica has a rescue been so uh, just amazingly executed. You're safe. You're sound. I'm, I'm thrilled. This is baby great. Jessica. And I have some empty gin bottles, guys. <laughs> artifacts. Whoa, Excuse me. Artifacts. They're called artifacts. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a flipping museum up in here. I do. Oh, okay. I don't goodness. know if this is the right okay. time to ask in the show, but I am just curious. The, the okay. thing we're getting into... I had no recollection of. Really? No, this you know, like in the end of that episode, we've been like, oh, where were you when you found Thriller? And I'm like, oh, Thriller just always existed. Like, I don't remember when I first found Thriller. Yeah. But this I never even knew happened. And it's yeah. such a unique pick for Ooh. our show, this like TV special. Like, how did you come to this thing? Like, how did you decide on this to be the topic? Everyone, we haven't even said the words. We're talking about the mystery of Al Capone's vaults, the, the television special. I arrived at this because I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that was a little true crime. I wanted yeah. to do something that was a spectacle, like something that was just like a one-time event, a yeah. thing. And there's a lot from the 80s, which are that, that we don't want to talk about because there's disasters. But this was like a huge deal. So that's kind of where I came to it. I love it. Yeah. So like I said, we're here to talk about the mystery of Al Capone's vaults. This was a two-hour live American television special that was broadcast in syndication on April 21st, 1986, hosted by Geraldo Rivera. Now, how did this documentary come to be? Well, the origin goes a little something like this. There's a construction company in the, I believe, early 80s that was planning a renovation of Chicago's Lexington Hotel. And during this process, they're surveying the building and they discover a number of walled off subterranean chambers on the property. Well, see here, the Lexington Hotel (laughs) used to serve as headquarters to gangster Al Capone. And there were rumors abound of Tunnels, secret passageways, fabled vaults, and hidden treasures left buried and forgotten relics of his vast criminal enterprise. And so suddenly they're like, hey, wait a second. Maybe there's a little something to these chambers in this sordid past of one Mr. Alphonse Capone. Now, if you watch this special, there's a really fascinating history that covers Capone and his operation. But we happen to have on mic our resident criminologist, (laughs) professor of mobology, Mobology. and author of historical gangster fiction herself, our guest host, Allison. Yeah. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that's why I invited you to be on this episode. How hmm. interesting. Coincidental. Yeah, I was like, why am I here? Funny how the brain works. But <laughs> yeah. no, you you have a, a very interesting fascination. You've written about this time period uh, in some of your stories. And so I thought it would be a lot of fun to hear your perspective, your knowledge, and talk a little bit about Capone himself and his enterprise and how we, we kind of find ourselves at this hotel under these circumstances. So take it away. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, My interest in the mob and gangsters and mafia, I like to kind of euphemize it a bit and say it's not so much that that I love. It's my obsession with logistics in general (laughs) in my day-to-day life. And my jobs that I've worked usually deal with how things get from point A to point B. So it kind of lends itself a bit to a fascination with the drug trade or Mm. in this case, prohibition and the bootlegging trade and the other things that the mafia and organized crime do. But yeah, Al Capone was 
the template. If you think about every mobster, everything you ever saw in The Godfather, Goodfellas, I'm going to say Scarface only to a point um, because Scarface was actually Capone, one of Capone's nicknames. Right. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't like that very much. And I'll tell you why. So he was born in Brooklyn in 1899. His parents were uh, Italian immigrants. They came from a very small commune in Naples. Now, I say commune slash small town. Geraldo said slum. Uh, So this will give you an idea of why I am trying to... His coverage of the history is a little slanted in Mm. a certain direction. Um, And as I was watching the special, I kind of like cringed a little bit with some of the things that he said. You think? Um, Yeah. yeah, (laughs) But but that's Geraldo. And we'll get to Geraldo later. Um, But uh, his family was kind of middle class. They weren't super poor. You know, when they came over here, they they were fine. But he had like nine siblings, eight siblings, something like that. Because a, a couple of them died in childhood, early childhood. And he's number four, I believe, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And they end up settling in New York. And I think he was probably around around 10 or 11 uh, when they settled. And he seemed like a gifted student and in, in everything in the beginning. But then he hits around age 13, 14, and his antisocial traits start to come out. Mm-hmm. And he is a little violent. He has a penchant for stealing. He's kind of just who knows why. We're not here to give that kind of analysis. But by the age of 14, he was expelled from school because he punched a female teacher. Oh, and God. that's where his education ended. At 14. Huh, I never okay? knew that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. He was just... The thing about Al Capone, to keep in mind, everything that this man did up until the point where he went to prison, he was a very young man. He became the head of the Chicago crime syndicate that he was appointed to around the age of 21, 22. That's what blew me away in mm-hmm. like learning this, is how young he was. You just Very imagine young. he was like a decade older than he was when all of this went down. It's yeah. that was one of the most surprising aspects. We talk about yeah. this in the '80s high so much too. He's like a light, he, you know. He's very much. You you, you, were, you didn't think this bridge was going to happen, but he's just like Michael Jackson. You know, Capone, yeah. it, it's just <laughs> okay. crazy how young all these celebrities talk about like nail it. What were we doing at 2021? What not Ryan in a crime syndicate? It's seriously <laughs> not even close. I mean, I probably would have been in jail for something if they let me go on long enough. Yeah. Not only <laughs> running, <laughs> not only running a crime syndicate, inventing a crime syndicate. Yeah. Like yeah. in a sense, like inventing yeah. the concept of it. Like it's crazy. Yeah, He had, I think it was those natural smarts that he had, because obviously when they said that he could have been gifted, but his behavior got ahead of that, you know, he just had problems with authority, which is the case in most antisocial personalities, right? Well, once he's out of school and he's kind of hanging around town, he starts to take up with various local racketeer people, gangster type people. He's doing different jobs for them. He gets married at the age of 19. He was actually in a very happy marriage, considering for a mobster. For a mobster. Asterisk. (laughs) Yeah, because when we in mobster life, we say you have your wife and you have your girlfriends. Mm. Uh, It's a completely separate enterprise. But his wife was Mae Josephine Coughlin. And as far as we know, I mean, they had a very happy life together. He had a son uh, named Albert, although they call him Sonny. For the most part, things were going well. Well, he starts his career 
I like this in particular. Do we want to hear how he gets his name Scarface? A thousand percent. So he was around 18, 19 years old. He was working as a bouncer in a Chicago bar that was owned by known gangster named Frankie Yale. While he was working there, he tried to ask out this woman who turned him down like two or three times. She's not interested. And so as she's heading out, she's like stands up to head out of the bar and he hands her this very like kind of foul compliment, basically commenting on the shape of her rear end or something like that. And of course, she was insulted as, you know, well, good for her. She knows her boundaries, you know, (laughs) and her brother... Uh, who was another known guy in the gangster community, happened to be there. His name was Frank Galluccio. And he broke out a knife and sliced up Capone's face. Um, He did deliver three slashes. He's got slashes down his cheeks and one across his eyebrow. It took 80 stitches to close him up. Wow. Capone was a scarred man from that point. And he always hated the name Scarface. In fact, he went to great pains to hide his scars. And he called them even war wounds to certain people. Wow. Wow. What's interesting about this, though, is Frank Galluccio, the guy who cut him up, when Al Capone finally rose to the head of the syndicate or rose high enough in the ranks. No, he hired Frank to be one of his bodyguards. (laughs) Really? Hey, keep your friends yeah. close and your enemies closer. Oh, Try yeah. It. Oh, yeah. That's, that's right. what Capone really excelled at that because on the one hand, he could be brutal. This was a guy who was known for violence. And when he took over the Chicago syndicate from the person that, that mentored him and brought him in, the violence tripled because Capone did not mess around. Yeah. But the people that, yeah, he knew that he could respect, he kept them closer. And of course, he also knew how to work the people. They considered him sort of a Robin Hood figure. Hmm, Yeah. This was all happening during the Great Depression, mind you, or right around it. Not quite. What I'm covering here with the Galluccio situation and him getting his nickname, this is all happening around 1918 or thereabouts. The Great Depression was a few years off. Well, Capone starts climbing further up the ranks. He gets in with a guy named Johnny Torrio. He was a major player in Brooklyn, and he's trying to set up operations in Chicago. And Torrio becomes almost a father figure to him because of various reasons. Again, I'm going to, I'm giving a Cliff Notes version of this. (laughs) Right. Because various people Capone killed, including, including Frankie Yale, uh, the guy who was working for in that bar, he was getting a little too much heat. So Torrio says, hey, I'm setting up this thing in Chicago. Why don't you go up there and take care of it? So Capone, looking forward to getting out of New York because of all the heat, he goes up there and he starts running the syndicate, or at least as an enforcer. He's not running it overall. He's not the uh, to the high level yet. But that time would come after a while through various skirmishes and whatnot, and an assassination attempt on Johnny Torrio. Al Capone effectively takes over the empire of Chicago, running all the bootlegging operations, because at this point, prohibition is underway. The Prohibition Act was passed in 1920, and it banned the sale of all liquor and alcohol in the United States. I love the little uh, factoid that he turned 21 yeah. The day that prohibition went into effect. Oh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> that was pretty funny. I was pretty like, funny. oh, fitting, yeah. And also, just as an aside, prohibition ended in 1933. 
Guess how old Al Capone was when he went to prison. Was he 33? He was 33. Wow. Huh. Huh. Yep. Uh, so it all kind of weirdly dovetails in yeah, you know, various different ways. Um, but yeah, during that time, Al Capone is running these massive bootlegging operations, prostitution operations, brothels were all over uh, the city at that time, drugs, you name it. Any criminal enterprise there was, Al Capone had his mitts in it. To give you an idea of how rich he was, I will just tie in another factoid um do you know al capone's other nickname other than scarface oh i don't know that i did uh, no baby i don't face. think so i had no idea I know, I know, I'm oh lost. baby face was another one it was snorky S- uh, snorky because <laughs> he snorky. loved the show he was so into come the along with the snorks did you know oh, captain well, Norton? Like did you know the snorks <laughs> No, I had a man. You guys are on some other cultural level than me right now. Snorky. No, a snorky is was slang at the time for someone who was a sharp dresser. Oh, I never dressed heard that. Well. And Al Capone, huh. when he started making his money, he would spend in 1920s dollars about five hundred dollars on a suit. Oh boy! In 20, yeah. 20s dollars, that's about seven thousand dollars. Oh my god! So. If he was alive today, he would be a Jeff Bezos. He was worth about a billion and a half dollars at the Jeez. height of his criminal enterprise. Just to give you an idea of how much money this guy was bringing in and the influence he was able to buy with that. Like in the classic mafia lingo, but he was the template for all of this, mind you. He had the cops. He had the judges. He had the magistrates, which I think is the same thing, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, but he had all politicians, the, yeah. all the politicians, the mayors. He had them all in his pocket. So he had a pretty nice little enterprise going up until the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And I'm not going to lay that out here. You've probably heard of it, um, at least in passing. It was a big gangland style shootout that happened yeah right in chicago i will tell you far fewer people were killed in the saint valentine's day massacre Mm -hmm. than i realized oh not many at all yeah that's what blew me away i thought it was like a huge like you know dozens of people and it's i think seven it's just seven Seven. yeah Yeah. it is just seven and they were all gangsters. I tell you what, if this had yeah. happened today, we probably wouldn't even hear about it outside Chicago news. You know what I mean? Because yeah, right. gang style, gangland style shootouts are, or any kind of shootout in our day and age are kind of common. Whereas back then, still pretty scandalous. And they suspected Capone was involved. It's never been truly confirmed. That's the thing about both Al Capone and the Valentine's Day Massacre. Al Capone always used other people to carry out his dirty work. Oh, sure. He was not the person to handle the gun. He was in Florida when all that went down. (laughs) Yeah. Some people just say he ordered the hits. And because he was having this big rivalry with some other people at the time. I mean, Al Capone, just to put an interesting cap on the type of guy that he was, I talked about his forgiving nature with certain people. He also ran a lot of soup kitchens. He he sponsored a lot of soup kitchens in Chicago during the Great Depression, like very much during the height of it. Some would say that, yes, this is a nice and altruistic thing. The city and the state itself were doing far less at the time to help a lot of people that were out of work and hungry during the Depression. And Al Capone, here he is, using his money to build these soup kitchens and help out thousands of people that are hungry 
But at the same time, he also did it to engender faith among the people. So he did seem like that Robin Hood figure, and it made it almost harder to come after him, you know, because he had the support of the people. Yeah. Do you know who he reminded me of as soon as I learned that fact? What's that? Breaking Bad. Yes. Gus Fring. Yes. Like Gus Fring's character where this the man <laughs> of the people, the man of the community, like it, you almost have yeah. to wonder if that wasn't a subtle influence on that, the creation of that character where it's like, well, you hide in plain sight because you're, I mean, granted the difference of that show is that everyone knew Capone was a mobster, but on the other hand, yeah, like we'll talk about it when we get to this special. There were people who still spoke very fondly of him. Yeah, very and much. liked him, knowing what he did. Capone was seen really as this sort of gregarious, generous, funny guy, very smart guy. And he was willing to give money out of his pocket to pretty much anybody he was spreading it around, which is funny given the the whole irony. He just didn't like giving it to the government. If he'd paid his taxes. <laughs> It would have gone to fund the same kind <laughs> yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's the I thing, mean, yeah. That's the thing. He had the people in his pocket, but the St. Valentine's Day Massacre kind of turned the tide against him a little bit. Uh, Chris, you bring up Breaking Bad, which I think is brilliant. Another thing is another show related to that, Better Call Saul, I would say references a lot of Capone, even to the fact that the main character of that show is based in Cicero. Illinois, which is where mm. Saul Goodman oh, and his brother and everybody grew up. And there's like another Capone brother who was like the good brother who tried to, you know, be the law enforcement guy and the prohibition agent guy and and everything. I'm not going to go into him. I'll save that for my own show. But there is a lot there play. Let's just say that. That's just one of the ways that Al Capone continues to affect culture to this day. A lot of the things that this man did and, and everything somehow have become this cultural touchstone, like a lot of the things that Capone did. And I don't mean, by the way, I hope anybody listening to this doesn't sound like I'm like worshiping Al Capone here. I don't do that. (laughs) But I think it's really interesting to consider the many facets of a person. And he was not just one thing. Yeah. And that's the thing about the Geraldo coverage was, you know, he interviewed a lot of people, not everybody he interviewed, but a lot of people he interviewed, they they focused a lot on the evil and the villainry of Capone. But there were a lot of other things going on with the guy, too. And I think once he had attained that certain level of power, he used it for good and evil. He was sort of a gentleman's killer, which I hate to say even gentleman in the context of Al Capone, because he was a killer. But there was like a principle involved in some weird way that you just, you know, a lot of the things that people try to do when they're writing crime and writing mafia, I think they pull from Capone without even realizing it because Mm. this was the guy who did those things. Yeah. And his career there in Chicago, I mean, it was pretty great for him uh, until it wasn't. And, uh, and then, you know, the feds got hold of, all the stuff that was going down. And he spent a good seven years as the head of that syndicate until they finally busted him on tax evasion. That was the one thing they could get him on. And oddly enough, that was only possible because in 1927, only a couple years before he went to prison, um, was when they passed the act in Congress saying that illegally gotten money could be taxed Mm. by the federal government. 
Uh, that wasn't even a thing until a couple of years before Al Capone wow. got busted. Mobsters of today, they know all about laundering their money and, and putting it through different channels to make it look legitimate. Al Capone did not have that. So he kind of walked so everyone else could run in the criminal world. It was sort of the, the, the St. Valentine's Day massacre was sort of like the last straw as far as the public standpoint. And that's when people started to turn on him. Like, Yeah, I mean, for a bit. Now, he sort of made a bit of a comeback yeah. for a couple of years. He left town. That's when he went to Cicero. He left Chicago and went to Cicero and kind of waited for the political tide to turn in his favor because there were a couple different mayoral races and things in yeah. that period where they were trying to crack down on the mob. Chicago had become this very sort of lawless place in terms of the fact that you had both all this organized crime, this prohibition driven bootlegging and, and gangster warfare happening due most in part to prohibition. He went to Cicero to escape that heat for the same reason that he went to Chicago to escape the heat in New York but then once he some of the mayoral races that he influenced turned in his favor, he came back to Chicago for a bit. And then he bought the house in Florida because he liked to get away. He didn't like to always stay where the action was. That's the thing about Capone. He was always more of a CEO than he was like an underling. So he was yeah. never willing to get his hands completely dirty. He liked to get away. Yeah. So he bought a house in Florida from, I think, one of the family members of Anheuser-Busch. And he kept that house. He held on to it even when he was in prison. He even died in that house yeah. um, when he passed away in 1947 from um, the effects largely of neurological syphilis because um, he had contracted syphilis from a very early age but never treated it. And it went to his brain. And when he finally went to prison for tax evasion, he spent about 10 years in prison before he was let out. And in that time, the effects of that disease really took hold. By the time he was finished with his prison sentence, he had spent about eight years in Alcatraz. Right after it opened, by the way, he was like one of the new first prisoners in Alcatraz. Yeah. By the time he got out of Alcatraz, and he was also bullied, and he had a horrible time in prison. Um, For the most part, he was not treated as like a mob boss in prison. Because at that time, and in Alcatraz, he was very far removed from his Chicago lifestyle you don't have the news and the media and everything following you there he was nobody in san francisco in an island off the coast of san francisco yeah there's a great quote in the documentary that said the alcatraz was not built for rehabilitation it was built for punishment and isolation very much so him being one of the the first people there and and having such a dramatic turn both because of that and like you said that his untreated syphilis because uh, he was afraid of needles. That's what ultimately... Yes. It, it's interesting the things that took him down. It's not the things that you would think they are. If Al Capone had functioned, if he had been born 10 years later, he probably would be like a one of the heads of the New York crime families that dominated through you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. He would have lived longer, hopefully. They say he contracted uh, syphilis likely when he moved to Chicago and started enforcing in all the different brothels there. Um, he was diagnosed very early. He knew he had it and there were treatments. And like you said, he was afraid of needles. Um, he ended up being one of the first recipients of penicillin when it was starting to be mass produced uh, for the treatment of syphilis. And uh, it slowed the disease down. But by the time he got out of prison and the effects had taken place, they said he had about the mentality of a 12-year-old. 
Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so you go from being this guy who, yeah, he's running a criminal enterprise, but just imagine anybody running any major enterprise being taken down that far. And then he ended up dying at home with his family of a stroke, you know, when he was 47 years of age, I think he was. I think he's 48. It was in 1947, but I think he was 48. You're right. You're right. That about matches up because he was born in 1899. So the years and everything are very close. But yeah, he was basically the king of everything and then the king of nothing. It was Oof. it's the study of Capone is very much a study in polarities in terms of the lifestyle uh, that one person can have. And yeah, when he died, it's very likely the federal government seized most of everything uh, or anything that they knew that they could get a hold of. His brothers were involved in criminal enterprise as well. His brother, Ralph, was one of his main enforcers and also uh, went to prison for tax evasion, uh, just like his brother did. I think he only served like three years, though. He wasn't in for quite as long. But yeah, it's fascinating to think that there could be all this stashed wealth and uh, booze and all this stuff in these underground things, because where Al Capone lived in the city, there was that whole tunnel system underneath that hotel and, you know, so there's very much a reason to believe that Al Capone would have had some leftover remnants of his life down there at one time. But I don't know, they were probably long gone before Geraldo ever showed up. But I could absolutely see the draw that Geraldo had to this story, just when you figure in Al Capone's life, his influence and and everything, to be able to get a hold of some of that piece of history. I mean, as someone who loves to study history of all kinds, but loves mafia history so much. I could relate to so much of Geraldo's enthusiasm in this <laughs> special, even as I'm laughing yeah. while watching it. So yeah, that's Al Capone in the tiniest nutshell I can put him in. And you've created a great segue into uh, talking a little bit about Geraldo himself. So Ben, you had the question earlier, like, how did Geraldo arrive at this? Yeah, how did like, he, how did he get attached to the project? So... Geraldo Rivera was born uh, Harold Riviera in actually on the 4th of July, uh, 1943. Oh, no. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Geraldo is an American journalist, a, an attorney, an author, political commentator, and talk show co-host. You probably know who he is, have heard his name before. Uh, the, certainly, he was a lot more popular in, uh, I would say, the, the previous three decades or so. Mm-hmm. We're going to fast forward a little bit to his career. He does graduate from law school, uh, Brooklyn Law School. He has his JD. And there's some great history of his I won't go into about things that he's been involved with. But let's meet him in 1970. He's a reporter for Eyewitness News. It's during his time working here that he gets national attention and even wins a Peabody Award because he reports on the neglect and abuse of patients with intellectual disabilities at Staten Island's Willowbrook State School in Rockland County's Lechtworth Village. So this is really what starts to kind of put him on a map as somebody who's willing to go out there, dig up these stories, unearth these, you know, kind of controversies and shine a light on him. What's neat about that Peabody Award, the coverage that Rivera did for that? After John Lennon saw it, he was so inspired by what he did that Lennon put on a benefit concert for the patients at those institutions. Oh, wow. In August 30th, 1972. Yeah, he did partner with Lennon. That's right. One-to-one concerts. I mean, that's great getting that kind of coverage and elevation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, And I think that really leads to this, you know, next part of his career where he 
1973 tapes a pilot episode of Goodnight America. This is a late night news magazine that he hosts and co-produces. I'm sorry, and executive produces. This show really tackles controversial topics. Things like marijuana usage, the status of Vietnam War draft dodgers. Actually, I'm jumping a little bit ahead in the show's run, but it's the first U.S. network television show to mention AIDS by name. This is at the onset of the AIDS epidemic. People don't know what it is. They're not wanting to talk about it. It's still, you know, taboo. And, you know, he's one of the, the first shows that are actually going to call it by name and, you know, bring some awareness to it. His show showed the first national telecast of the historic Zapruder film. This is the JFK assassination film that is probably the most known. Mm -hmm. So again, he's, he's doing these things and eventually starts to appear in segments of ABC national programs, such as 2020 and Nightline uh, in the late 70s. So this is Geraldo's kind of growing career. Well, then we hit 1985. Mm-hmm. And ABC's Rune Arledge refuses to air a report done by Sylvia Chase. She did a, um, a report on 2020 on the relationship between Marilyn Monroe and John and Robert F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So Rune is like, we're, we're not going to do this. We're not going to report it. And Rivera is very publicly critical of that. And he says that Arledge is compromising his journalistic integrity. And he says that Arledge's friendship with the Kennedy family is basically causing him to not want to reveal the story. And uh, Rivera is fired from ABC. Because of this criticism. That's maybe about six months before we meet him at this special. Again, company doing this renovation of the Lexington Hotel finds these subterranean chambers. Wait, maybe there's a little something to this. Al Capone operated here. All the stuff Allison talked about. Massive criminal enterprise. Bootlegging. Buried riches, see? Buried riches. So... There's a TV company that's run by John Joslin and Doug Llewellyn. Doug, you might know this is a bit of a history poll. He was the host of the People's Court. Dun dun dun. Oh, yep. Wow. And he was in the special. And I dun, dun. and I actually oh, really? I flipped out when I saw him. And my, again, my husband, who had not ever seen this special, saw me flipping out when I saw Doug Llewellyn. And he was like, What? I'm like, the People's Court. I love that. <laughs> like, you did you not him. watch that's the People's so Court? Wait, and he still does the guy- it. Was he the guy that was at the uh, safe cracking party yeah. interviewing people? Oh, yes. Okay, that's okay. awesome. That's awesome. Good <laughs> oh catch. Oh my god, oh, it was man. such a nostalgia trip. I love the people's court so Goodness much. Goodness gracious, <laughs> good times. So these two are like, hey, this has the makings of a great TV special, but they knew the show could not be pre-recorded because news of whatever was in the vault would leak by the time it aired. So they're like, this has to be a live broadcast on site at the vault when it opens. And they wanted to tap Geraldo Rivera as the host. Now, I couldn't find a good reason as to why. Maybe because he had that cachet of being somebody who was willing to kind of like put himself out there around. I mean, this isn't really a controversial topic, but for some reason, his name climbs to the top. I did not see that anyone else was in consideration. He does love the political and the criminal intrigue okay. kind of stuff. So maybe that's it. Is this on ABC that this was aired on? Do you know? Because he was fired from ABC. Yeah, he sure was, wasn't he? So I he? almost wonder if this was given to him as almost kind of a, we fired you, but we still maybe have some contractual obligations. I don't know. So this is one thing that I'm uh, unclear about. So part of the history, too, and Allison, maybe you know more about this. 
is they said that broadcast networks thought the show was too risky, so the producers syndicated the TV special with stations across the U.S. So does that bypass working directly with, say, ABC, NBC, those types of networks? Possibly. I mean, if you're syndicating something, that often means that any network can pick it up okay. uh, in that market and kind of run it. That's how I understand syndication to work, sort of like whenever uh, a sitcom, say you get 100 episodes of, of Seinfeld, that means you can go into syndication and any network that is running something can like buy that and run it on their network. So because I'm not seeing any particular broadcast network associated with this production. So that's what's causing me a little bit of like pause to say I don't think this was specifically ABC. So maybe it was then a just he had a he had a deal yeah. with a production company and then they picked it up. So I think that's whoever what it produced is. it then yeah so it's not a network that sponsored it. This is ABC News presents whatever. It's like this special that Geraldo had he sold the idea to a production company they ran with it kind of thing. Well, I think the production company had the idea and brought him on board. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that makes more sense. Okay. Okay, so they're going to syndicate it, all these stations, and then they hype the show to the moon. And I'm going to go ahead and play the promo now. Scarface Al Capone may have built it, and nobody knows what's in it. Some say money. Some say body. Some say it's booby trap, and we're going to open it. What secret lies inside? It may be Scarface Al Capone's biggest secret, and we'll open it on live television. Step inside the vault with me on April 21st. Discover the mystery only on Channel 11, Monday, April 21st at 8 p.m. Rivera loved the Tommy Gun action a lot <laughs> in this whole thing, top oh, to yeah. bottom. And Tommy Gun! <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I do love how Geraldo just keeps calling him Scarface Al Capone. Just knowing that Al Capone would probably blow him away if he had a Tommy gun and was still alive. Just, he kept saying it over and over again. I'm like, is he doing it just to besmirch the ghost of Al Capone at this point? Yeah, like how popular was that nickname? I don't know. No, it wasn't. He, it was just that Capone just hated it so much. It's just well, almost sure. like, wow, I don't think I saw it as much in the media, but he glommed onto it hard. <laughs> I saw I saw one other um, really good ad for it, trying to hype it up, that said, uh, quote, it may be Chicago's equivalent of King Tut's tomb. It's <laughs> massive. 125 oh. feet long, eight feet high, eight feet wide. A world premiere event, a treasure vault, or tomb. Well, now that's a that's oh. a promo to Barry because oh boy, King King Tut's, Tut's tomb, bro. Tomb. Also, at least that had a ooh. body in it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and look, we we all have our different frame of references. This kind of bothered me, but it's massive, 125 feet long, eight feet high and wide. So it's a hospital corridor that's almost half the length of a football field. I'd say it's a, <laughs> it's a really big hallway, but I wouldn't say massive. Yeah, if it was a tomb, perhaps. I know we're going to have a lot to unpack in chemistry on this. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but that's the promo. Again, they really hyped this up. And the concept was going to be this. So it's a two-hour special, as mentioned. About an hour of that special was basically a documentary. It's going to explain who Capone was, what he did, and why people might be interested in a secret vault. Mm-hmm. The other half is live. And... What I saw, it was up to Rivera to keep the excitement going as crews started making their way into the space. Now, I think we're all jaded by reality television these days. This was honest to goodness 
live television. Nobody knew what was inside. Probably is evidenced by the fact that they found nothing, spoilers, because if they had planted it like they do in a lot of other reality shows, they'd find something more than a bunch of bottles. But this was like actual, real, unfolding before our eyes. Now, what's yeah. fascinating, though, Allison, I know you found this. Ben, I'm curious if you found this. This was not the first time that some like secret purported riches were going to be uncovered no. on national live of course television. This is on my radar. Of course I love it. Okay. This. <laughs> That's right, everybody. I did okay, did either of you know about this before doing research for this no. show? I know. I did okay. not. All right. No. Complete wow to all of us. The SS Andrea Doria. Okay, pause. Did either of you know about the Andrea Doria before this? No. Yes. And I love nautical disaster stories. Okay. I honestly don't know <laughs> so about this one. Ben, did you know about this because of the episode of Seinfeld called the Andrea Doria? <laughs> I wish that was my yes. That would have been amazing. Do you know this because you have a diving background? No, mostly because the museum I worked at, we had a traveling exhibit based on a shipwreck. And there were a bunch oh, of stories of okay. different shipwrecks that came along with it. Oh, I, I didn't think of that aspect of your history, but of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you don't know, the Andrea Doria was a ship that collided with another ship called the Stockholm in heavy fog about 50 miles south of Nantucket in July of 1956. Now, mm. these ships in fog did not realize they were charging toward each other. They finally show up on each other's radars and they go to swerve. Now, Ben, you also have a sailing background. Yeah. Is there maritime protocol? If you're you're out there on the open waters, you see you're about to collide with another vessel. Is there a maritime protocol for what you're supposed to do in this case to avoid collision? I mean, many a horn, blast okay. donuts. Uh, okay. I mean, at this stage of the game, it's probably too late to do anything. Technically speaking, like if you're in a race... Whomever is receiving wind on the starboard side of their ship has the right okay. of the way, and the other ship needs to bear off. But it sounds like at this point – now, these are these are steamships too, right? So we're not talking about yes. sails. So the reason I ask is that apparently the protocol for these kinds of ships is that you're supposed to go right. You go starboard. Yeah. So both mm. ships are supposed to go starboard. For some reason, the Doria goes left. They Doria, go to come port. On. That would have happened if I was driving it because right. I always confuse left and right like the first time. And I'm like, oh, the other left. So that would be me. They're sort of exposing their broadside to the Stockholm. And yeah. here's the problem with the Stockholm. It's basically meant – it was designed to deal with icebergs. Oh, dear. Mm. So they got the business end of a ship that's supposed to like cut its way through icebergs. Ouch. Not going to go well. The ship starts to sink. It takes about 11 hours. Unfortunately, 52 people died. But out of 1,700, it could have been a whole lot worse. Not like the Titanic. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of the story there. Well, there's rumors of millions of dollars of cash and jewelry in the purser's safe that was somewhere in this wreck. And there have been a lot of divers, you know, much like going down to the Titanic, going down to see what people can find on the Andrea Doria. There was a particular diver, Peter Gimbel, who had started this whole endeavor called the Doria Project, and he had led many dives down there. And he's one of the people who uncovered this safe, and they bring it up. This is in 1981. And he's doing this documentary called Andrea Doria, The Final Chapter. 
And he wants to open this safe, but he wants to do it on live television, partly mm. because he wants to fund his expedition. It yeah. ain't cheap to do all this. And he finally gets that chance in 1984. So this is only about two years prior to uh, the mystery of Al Capone's vaults. And it was billed as the live TV event of the year. It's at the New York Aquarium. Millions of people are watching in different U.S. markets and are up to 44 countries it was apparently broadcast. Uh, again, all this speculation. Two hours of buildup. Guess what they find, everyone? Not the treasures you're hoping for. These aren't the That's treasures a- you're seeking. <laughs> It was uh, some silver certificates. Right. Yeah, some <laughs> silver some certificates <laughs> and some a lot of water and some lira, Italian lira, apparently. So basically nothing, nada. So if this is not a, a forecast of things to come for this special, I don't know what is. I didn't know this. This was so crazy. Yeah. It's interesting because when something like that happens and fails ultimately to deliver on the ultimate promise, Companies like media companies, if this had been a book or a movie studio or something, they would be like, ah, no, we're not going to do this again. But they're a lot more risk averse now, I think, than they were back in the 80s. I think they were still willing to spend that money and try and try again and to make it stick. So it's interesting that Geraldo was able to probably come to them probably on the tail end of this and probably pitch it. And I'm amazed that people were like, oh, yeah, let's try it again. This is Al Capone. You know, maybe we'll actually find something down there. (laughs) But if he did that, you know, today, you know, if he tried to go to somewhere to pitch this idea after a failure like that, no, every network would be like, nah, we're good, bro. No, put this on YouTube. We're fine. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's kind of interesting that, that, yeah, that Geraldo was able to actually make this happen on the tail end of this show. Yeah, so as I mentioned, there's sort of two parts that are interwoven together of this special. I won't go through all of it. I just want to hit a few beats. Uh, You know, he kind of sets the stage for it at the beginning. He talks to a lot of experts. He talks to a special agent with the IRS, an architectural expert from the Chicago Historic Landmark Society. He's talking to the executive director of the Chicago Crime Commission. He's talking to gun and explosive experts. He's also talking to people who are like historically knew Capone, reported on Capone. There was one guy who was mm-hmm. effectively a rival. He was a news reporter, you know, doing all these, I guess you'd call exposés on That piece is insane in the him. special. It's crazy. Yeah, we need to talk about that yeah. in chemistry. Uh, somebody who was like the wife slash lover of one of his like top henchmen goons who may have been responsible or one of the trigger men in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They talked to a lot of people. It's crazy. He got a lot of people for it. He sure did. So that was awesome. And then you have this historic retrospective. And again, it's all cut between this like chaotic scene of they're underneath the hotel. They're in the vault. There's men in blue jumpsuits and orange hard hats they're jackhammering what else are they doing they're digging oh there's a whole digging. bulldozer down there or bobcat-ing. whatever you call it yeah they got the, what do you the call bobcat, this? Oh, bobcat. <laughs> oh did you guys notice too the way he like tried to pose on the thing he kept putting his leg up yeah on the like the treads or the wheels or whatever he's nothing but a showman the thing, i'll say my, that much. You know, i was just laughing he was so exuberant 
yeah. as well. Oh, I was just I mean, gonna say we gotta we gotta get to that. We'll but yeah, cover that. Like, like so there's all of this like work in progress. You do really feel like you're in the middle of an active zone where they are excavating feverishly, you know, to to deliver this promise within the two hour time frame they have. And so that's what we get as part of this special. Now, we're, there's so much we can talk about. We're going to say for chemistry, but let's jump ahead because one of the things that was really f- amazing about this is that it netted 30 million viewers, yeah. making it the highest rated syndicated special in history. And I think that's, according to Geraldo in 2011, still true. Yes. Yeah, I, that's what I've gathered. That's okay. what I found in my research. Yeah. Now, here's where I I found a little discrepancy. He says more people watched it than the Super Bowl. But I pulled up numbers for the Super Bowl 20, which happened in uh, 1986. So it would have been a couple months before this. And it estimated 92 million viewers. Is that global or U.S.? Because I think I don't a lot of this, know. A lot of times the Super Bowl numbers and and com- back then and was there a us- global viewership of. The American football Super Bowl? The Super Bowl, yeah, in certain countries. In Canada, especially in the UK, uh, American football has always had a bit of a uh, popularity there, but especially in Canada. I have a hard time believing that U.S. viewers were only a third of that 92 million, though. There definitely could be an overshot because, I mean, when you listen now, it's about 100 to 120 million usually that, that watch. But again, that's the global audience. So that sounds to me... 90 million Americans in the 80s when there was probably, what, about 250 million people? Even that sounds a little high in the United States okay. at that time. But so that's that's a good thing to kind of question. I actually didn't go and look at the breakdown. So I could see why you're not sure. Yeah, you know, I even looked at the Nielsen ratings and the Nielsen ratings were still higher for the Super Bowl that year than they were for this show. That makes sense that Geraldo would overblow it. I mean, 30 million is a lot. Maybe like Oscars. Well, not okay. Super Bowl. So I, I did yeah, try to look right. at viewership of like the most popular TV shows at the time. This is what it showed. It would be roughly the equivalent of people who were watching The Cosby Show. That was kind of like the biggest show at that time. Ooh. Family Ties was a second, which was maybe a little bit under the 30. And then you have shows that were several million beneath that, which would be Cheers, Murder, She Wrote, and Golden Girls. So yeah. I wanted to just pull those numbers because they were mentioned just because – like you said, 30 million is by far nothing to scoff at because this is still the highest rated syndicated special, we believe, until this day. So pretty crazy. I think it would be, too, just to speculate, it would be way lower today if, just because of the fact that I think that back then a lot of people that were watching it were yeah. probably lived through it. You know what I mean? Like Capone. The, the market's not as fractured. I mean, I hear people yeah. say all the time who do television now, streamers, movies, they're all like, we would kill for the numbers back then. Mm-hmm. For television especially. any Like, you know, the, the Friends Seinfeld days? Oh, yeah. They're like, right. we would kill for those numbers. You don't get those numbers anymore. So, for sure. You know, there, there's yeah. a little bit of that as well. But again, so, you know, this is about an hour and a half of content minus the commercials. And what's inside, y'all? 
Everything. Nothing. They find it all. There's, they there's a car and his whole gang's in there. Yeah. And dirt. Yeah. 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 So yeah. much find dirt. Al Capone still alive. Like, hey, it took you long enough. See? Right. <laughs> you thought I died of stuff I would the actually be time. really happy to have one of those gen bottles, though. I'm not going to lie. I, honestly, <laughs> if I'd been down there alone doing my urban spelunking fantasy. I was going to say, fantasy, are you drinking gin tonight in honor of this show? Is I, that was, okay. I was. I was. My glass is empty now. But was it like yes, a lavender I, gin? What was that? It is. It's oh, a, yeah, it lovely. was purple. Um, lovely. Beautiful. Yeah, an indigo variety. But yeah, I can absolutely understand, though, why people were drawn to this yeah. at that time. And yeah, knowing your entertainment is coming from very few places. And so, yeah, you get to learn about Al Capone and there's something buried. I mean, you could just see the recipe forming here and yeah. and the excitement that builds. I mean, I was just a child when this thing aired in 1986. I was in, you know, first grade. So I had no appreciation for it when it aired. It came later when I got to see and understand. But incredible. Just, I love the setup. I love the history of this already. It's just all the ingredients are here. So why? Yeah. Why couldn't it work? <laughs> Yeah. It's such a bummer. <laughs> so, I mean, the special kind of ends. Geraldo's blasting an air horn. He's gathering up the crew. He's throwing in the towel. He says, it seems, at least up till now, that we struck out with the vault. I'm disappointed about that, as I'm sure you are. This is one time in my life that a pot of gold would have been a lot more fun than chasing the rainbows. Mm. <laughs> Dang. Poetic. That was actually really good. Very I poetic, mean, damn, Geraldo. Yeah. yeah, go you. And then... How does this end uh, this broadcast, Ben? Do you remember how this, how we go out? He sings. He like, he like half buttedly sings like Chicago, Chicago, <laughs> and like wanders out of the basement. Oh, he was so lost by that. Yeah, point. just a destroyed human. He does sort of wander into the darkness in the back of the thing. He's just, yeah, yeah he's singing Frank Sinatra Chicago. He's doing it because basically he said it was a bet that he had with his critics, that he would sing a song if he found nothing. Right. And then, of course, my favorite part is as he's walking away, it says, sponsored by Budweiser. And I was yes! like, <laughs> Mine was Stroh's at the beginning, and then, yeah, Budweiser. I mean, Stroh's. let's just book in this with booze, everybody. And then all the workers, yeah. like, no instructions have been given, so all the workers are just standing around as he's singing and walking away, and they're like, oh, okay, what now, do we do? What should we do? Do you want the bobcat still down here? Like, nobody knows what to do. Well, and speaking of booze, yeah. Ben, what, uh, what's Geraldo's next move off camera? How do we close out his experience with this special? In an interview much later about like this night, he comes out and explains that he was so defeated and destroyed by nothing in there. And he walked ac across the street to a Mexican restaurant and immediately, quote him, gets tequila drunk yeah. to deal with the situation. Yep. Oh, boy, Rivera. I mean, oh, that's man. probably what I would have done, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about y'all. Tequila would knock me out. If I have too much mm. of it, I am laying up. Well, as the 80s, he was probably snorting some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> We can we can always assume that's what everyone's doing as well. An eighties journalist, come on, I mean, come I mean, on. Yeah. yeah, he said I was humiliated and, and thought I'd never work again in the business. He goes to sleep and wakes up the next morning. He said there's a knock at his door, and basically he has twenty two job offers. Yeah, the next morning. His career started that day. Yeah, Frankly, but, yes. So not quite the nail in the coffin that everyone paints it to be, but certainly not the ending 
again, that Geraldo wanted. And that's kind of where we're going to end history class. This was a bit of a longer one, but we had so much to talk about. Is there anything else on this dirty, dusty floor with a few bottles in the corner that we need to cover before we we really dive into this vault and uh, uncover all of our memories? Anything else we got in this class, y'all? Uh, no, thank God for antibiotics. That's all I'm going to say. Um, that's it. <laughs> I think that means Ben's done. He's, yeah, he's walking off camera. Oh, he's, he's already left the slurring it. <laughs> it. He's drinking uh, from those empty bottles I brought in here. I don't understand. Gin has aged so nicely. It is funny you say that because I actually thought some of these dusty old bottles here might be a wonder tonic. Uh, something that breaks down Ew. the mental walls and lets you relive all of your fond memories. And of course, what could possibly go wrong imbibing an unknown liquid sitting in a poorly ventilated chamber for decades? There's only one way to find out. Let's drink it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, we took a trip here in more ways than one. And we oh, found yeah. ourselves in chemistry class of all places. Yeah. I mean, Science. That, that seems about the right place to go when you're talking about mm. a noted bootlegger. That's right. Of forbidden alcohol yeah yeah so sounds about right a little bit of weird science that was a john hughes movie right did he do weird science yes. yeah. yeah he did that's a actually that's another one that kind of doesn't hold up and i think you mentioned that in a previous I episode did. ben yeah but i you might be right that 16 candles holds up even less oh it's pretty oh it's mm-hmm. super rough <laughs> it's crazy that it, i'm even saying that but yes it is amazing how things age yeah. <laughs> or don't <laughs> speaking of aging what time of life did you watch this as a youngster did you ben you said you never even had this piece of nostalgia no this this was early like i i was first you know really early in my life and you know this really brings me back it was nice i i remember first seeing this special when i was just a young blossoming boy two weeks ago and it really (laughs) And that was the first time I'd ever heard about it either. It was all like a one-two punch. This exists now. Watch it. Did you post a "I was today years old" win? Yes, Is it, it did just you like post that me. on our Insta? <laughs> just like T I L. Takes me back to mid-May with the spring. Everything It's great. Um, yeah, no, I, I only just learned about this. Okay, all right, Allison. Do you have any? What are your youngest memories? When did you first encounter this special? Did you watch it live? Did you hear about it? Did you catch it later? Fill us in. I did not watch it live, or I have no memory of watching it live. I know my parents did. And also, I grew up watching talk shows with my mom, daytime talk shows, all the rage. Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, Maury Povich, you know, all those, and Oprah, um, and Geraldo. Mm -hmm. And that was really late 80s, early 90s for me, watching Geraldo. And I only learned about it in the sort of retrospective. And I want to say, like, I would hear my mom mention it, Mm. or I'd heard I would hear mentions of it. But I didn't really come to fully know about it probably until around the, you know, when I started actually using the internet or it's always been in the general bubble of conversation and the ether of my upbringing, just given the things I was watching and the things my parents watched. But given that it it did air in 1986, um, there's no way I would remember that. But yeah, it, it was definitely something that came along a few years later, but not too much later. Okay. All right. 
I actually do remember when this was on. Whoa, so I would awesome. have been seven years old. Amazing. Yeah. And I remember the family gathering in the living room to watch it live. I remember it was a big deal. And I recall being really curious. You know, when you're that age, you're not really paying full attention, right? You're in mm-hmm. the room. Sure, yeah. And you're curious, but you're not like, oh, a deep dive into Al Capone's history. Let's hear more about I've the been Prohibition waiting era. Mr. Bun Bun, yeah. come here and watch this with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're just kind of in and out, but you're curious about it. Why? Because you're like, oh, there's this gangster. And I seem to recall this image in my mind that they would find this large underground garage with all these old-timey cars in it. Oh, that'd be awesome. And I don't remember if, like, my parents had said that out loud and that image kind of stuck to me. I can still almost kind of envision this, like, dark garage, brick walls, and you just see these, like, Model T Ford, you know, gangster from the 30s kind of looking cars just entombed and all these awesome things they would find in there. I just remember a lot of speculation and curiosity. And, of course, I remember that they ended up finding nothing. Yes. But I don't remember like a lot of disappointment or disgust or like frustration about that, either on my part or like my family's. I just remember it was like nothing was found. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started months ago thinking about what topics do I want to do for 80s High for the remainder of junior year, our third season. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, I started like diving into like specials, you know, baby Jessica was one of them that came up and a few others. But then I was like, I think I typed in like true crime. Like, is there any case that would be like friendly for our show? You know, we don't like to get too morbid or dark on here. And then this popped up and I was like, I remember that. I remember watching it. Mm -hmm. Well, we also, we pinged our Instagram followers. We did. Nice. And we asked them a question. We said, Hey, what did you think was in Al Capone's vault? We gave him a couple options. Was there money? Were there bodies? Or was there a big bunch of nothing? And nothing. 60% said nothing. Now, that might be a retrospective bias where they're like, of course I thought that. And then they they do a little self-shoulder pat. That's what I'm doing right now (laughs) on this non-visual medium. Patting my own shoulder. I've got to wonder if that's true. Because, like, you know, at some point in the in the special, like, people's court goes down and pulls a big party. And the party... Yeah, what are some of the things people say, Ben? The party's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. A couple comments I noticed in the party. One, not a single person says they think it's empty. I'm just screaming, like, you sheeple, think for yourself. You're just thinking of the ads. What do you think is really down there? It's probably... Archaeology is 99% nothing in these things when you find them. And they're all like, oh, yeah, no, it's definitely bodies. Oh, it's definitely Jan or oh, like, Hold on, Ben. You're at a safe money. cracking party dressed like a flapper. You want right, something you're amazing. There. You want no, something I mean, okay, <laughs> so sure this is where I can yeah. bring up the thing. Oh, like, okay. That didn't occur to people <laughs> when they're imagining this. And it wasn't, I don't know why, but one of the first things I remember thinking even when I learned about this as a younger person, not as like a tiny child, I don't want to paint myself as some prodigy. Yeah. This was much later was the fact that they're digging all this out. It's walled off and they're digging through these walls. They're setting charges to blow up walls. If something was walled off, you would think the thing you're walling. I don't know. I feel like the people that were walling it off for whatever reason, would have taken whatever was... Sure. If it's money, certainly. You know, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Money, artifacts, you know, anything interesting. They would have taken it. I'm assuming coming from your podcast world that you do, like if there's a walled off 
brick wall in a basement. There's a pentagram drawn out. You're like, there's definitely a demon that's been locked away. Like a sacrificed goat lying right. in a pentagram in blood. Yes. It's a yeah. curse upon the Windy City. <laughs> Geraldo Rivera, tear down that. Releases <laughs> Cthulhu upon Chicago. Yes. My God. Oh, uh, mercy. Uh, were there any other things that people said in that lineup, Ben? Oh, sorry. Of, uh, in that room, though, the other thing I just yeah. thought was interesting is you see people have toy guns and the guns yeah. look like guns. Which, like, you and I talked about the NES Zapper this season. Oh, and, of yeah. course, that means this episode happened before the law was in place in America where, like, a toy gun had to have an orange cap or clearly not be Yeah, yes. kind of ages it with the Zapper. That's true. That's a good point. Thought that good was kind of very good point. Yeah. Uh, but, no, what else, what else did they say? So, either people at the Safe Cracking Party or they actually asked people they were interviewing on the documentary. I mean, bones, money, yeah. a body or two. One person did say an empty vault, but I don't think they were in that lineup. I think they were like somebody in the actual doc that was being interviewed. Yeah. One person just said, that vault will tell a lot of stories. Well, you know. Unfortunately. If there was a story for each grain of dirt. Exactly. There would be so many stories. Nailed it. Just a few other comments. Uh, You know, I watched this on YouTube and I kind of scrolled the comments. And a lot of people just saying like, I remember watching this as a kid. I was in college. I you know, sat down with my mom and dad. So there was a lot of people who remember that this was such a big deal and that you all had to tune in at that point, right? There's no YouTube. There's no rewatch. You watch it live or you don't see it at all. Yep. And again, that's that's what's kind of different about modern you know, times or even like a little bit later than that. You could have recorded it on VCR or at least that became more common that more people had VCRs and the ability to actually do that. Early 80s, I don't think it's as much of a thing as it was later 80s for sure. I don't think I saw it when it was live, but I know I did see it because as I was watching it tonight before we've recorded, I was like, I remember this. I remember that. That feels familiar Hmm. to me vaguely. Okay. But so I do wonder if there was like a re-airing of it at some point. I mean, there certainly could have been. Yeah. I just don't think it's something that's going to show up a lot like... You know, right. there's that one movie that you felt like you always caught on late night television. They Clue, had to try or, to know, get their like... money back out of it, right? Because if there's anything sure. that we can glean from this is that, my God, this couldn't have been cheap. This had to be very, very expensive. Even oh, under sure. today's standards, you're paying all these workers to excavate this site. You're paying Geraldo. Yeah. You're paying, you know, all these people. and And it's like... Uh, yeah, this is going to be very expensive. And so I would imagine they would have had to rear it at some point, maybe if it was like the off hour on some, you know, nothing channel in the middle of the night, uh, just to try to get something back out of it again. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of people just, you know, also remembering how embarrassing it was and how like the next day it was sort of the the talk of the school at the water cooler at work, you know, people just kind of either having a laugh or, you know, just making some comment about how absolutely nothing was found. So yeah, that's just like some of the fun commentary of people who actually lived through it and remembered that that time period. Let's talk about our experiences on this rewatch. And maybe we can do a little round robin style of things that you found interesting. But the robin's going to go around so many times, it's going to get dizzy and fall down. I've Chris, Allison, oh I have so many thoughts. <laughs> All right, well, let's get some out. Why don't you get two bites of the apple since you got so much? Take a double bite, buddy. What you got? 
All right, just out of the gate, like, look at this whole thing. I think I think one thing that surprised me from the whole, yeah, I'll start 10,000, and then we'll get in the weeds on all sorts of stuff. Sure. I want to take, like, a blue-collar approach. Was, like, something I kept thinking about blue-collar while watching this special. And I have two two main observations. One is all the people actually doing the work. And any of us or any of you who've listened, who you've got, like, the, the struggle between management and the people in the front line who are actually doing the thing. Yes. But Rivera's all pumped up, like, we're going to blast through this and do this in two hours. And I'm just thinking of the dudes in the background, like, two hours? Does this guy even know what kind of work goes into breaking down? Wall? To be rushed in a manual job like that for two hours live is insane <laughs> to me. Not to mention, he's barking orders left and right. right. He's like, all right, guys, bring it down, bring it down. Like, he's the foreman. And they're he's probably like, not. dude, you are not in charge here. <laughs> In their way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that was one of just like the very practical real thing happening of like like the the time old traditional mismatch between management and the people actually doing the real work. No, that is a great observation. The other one that's changed, it's almost contemporary culture. It's a bit of a bridge, but I thought it was fascinating. Is like like you think in today's reality television, how obsessed Western media consumers are with like blue collar trade. Like how many competitive cooking shows are there? How many mm. competitive remodel shows are we going to do? The whole discovery network. Yes. Dirty jobs. All right. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Worshipping yeah. all that. And we barely mm-hmm. talk to anyone with expertise for two hours. Like he does talk about to some historians and stuff like that. But, you know, they scan the room with like 19 different tools. Like, oh, the, the guys skated with this and they looked at this and they did this. And they said it's either solid or empty, which also red flag, bro. But like in today's TV, you'd interview those people. You're like, here's the seismologist. And they explain the tool and what mm-hmm. they did and how it worked. But he, like, never talks to anybody who's really doing the work. <laughs> he talks to one, the explosives expert, I think is the closest That's one. Who's also That's the, the Tommy one. Gun expert? It's the same yeah. dude. Oh, in both yeah, scenes. yeah, yeah. This guy loves but, destruction. But also, he, he's like, what's that putty-like thingy? And what's that bottle-like thingy? Like, <laughs> right. that's what he's asking right. him. So yes. it's like, yeah. Rivera, could you do a little homework on what's actually <laughs> happening tonight? Like, come on, man. So anyway, that was the blue color thing stuck with me from top to bottom the whole time. It was just fascinating to watch. Yeah, I would say the gun and explosive expert, that guy, was probably the closest he came to somebody who you would consider in like a blue collar type of job. Yeah. Yeah, because everyone else was like the IRS agent or the historic society. Wasn't there a medical examiner that was coming in? They were on site in case they found bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. I don't think I ever talked to him, though. But yeah, okay. I don't think he did. Yeah, I think they were just there. No, that's a fantastic set of observations. Him barking orders at those guys. You just have to wonder what was going through their heads. Like, they're like, is is time and a half worth it? Like, what is this overtime pay? Like, listen, I work with unionized folks in my job. Not going to take it. If somebody who's not a foreman or a crew chief came around and started barking orders, that would fly over like 0%. (laughs) They're like, there's like, there's nothing in the vault, but Rivera, there could be by the end of tonight, if you don't shut up. You have to assume those guys are union or something too. So it's like, they're probably Probably like one second away from calling their union boss to like come down here to handle this. (laughs) Absolutely. So that's second away. Allison, any fun observations that you wanted to kick off? Man. Okay. So again, I mentioned earlier his exuberance. He's so thrilled to be here. Geraldo literally looks like a giant child who gets to play with a real fire truck for the first time in his life (laughs) and he is just so into this and you just like 
I hadn't seen this particular special in over a couple decades. And then I've watched a lot of Geraldo's talk shows as a kid and teenager. And then, you know, I've seen him off and on through the media throughout the years. And so developed a hardened opinion of Geraldo. And then to go back and watch like vintage Geraldo from like, even before I really was aware of him. And it's just like, I could see everything about him is like, what the writers of like, Anchorman or some other like (laughs) comedy that lampoons journalists from the 70s and 80s used him as like an inspirational springboard. He's got the mustache, the flowing hair, the daring, very hyper-masculine way of speaking. He's just got this whole male journalist badass package, you know, that you now know is kind of hilarious. And so every time, like every five minutes on this thing, I am just busting out laughing just (laughs) randomly because I just feel like I'm watching a parody, Right, but it's not. It's ridiculous. Like, and to hammer that bit home, my... (laughs) My favorite bit, which is almost a throwaway thing, but my brain snags on stuff like this, is he's walking along a train track, like delivering some kind of thing. And then he gets to the end of where the line of the train track ends and literally uses the phrase, he'd reach the end of the line. And he's like, just imagining the production team going like, oh, yeah, man. We're just going to like have you start here and then you deliver your dialogue and then we're going to get here. We're just going to keep panning over and you just keep walking. Like, I'm just imagining this whole scenario just so he can make that stupid visual pun. <laughs> I'm just dying Um, just in little moments like that. And then finally, because we have to bring it back home. You guys already mentioned him, the Tommy gun. Oh, my God. When Geraldo gets to fire a Tommy he gun. Lo- oh my god! On live television, <gasps> and a bunch of beer bottles in the, up in the building. In the building, like not even they didn't go to a range. They just went to another floor yeah. in this dilapidated hotel and set up some bottles. And he just fired a Tommy gun. Apparently, that was a shooting range that was set up in the hotel. Is that real? It was in that building. I mean, it was in a in that dilapidated no, I building. Know, but like, just... like was was it like were they using Capone's old target range in the building of his operations? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. That's right. Because there was that's a room set up they, for that. That's what I thought they okay. said. Good point. And I'm yeah. like, how? Okay, how did that? Catch. How did that zoning happen? How did nobody call a noise complaint? They paid off the whole block. They'd be like, if he had Again, Tommy guns on floor 13. budget. And think about the, okay, guys. Now, I know we're not all media people here, but we know enough about media productions. Insurance. Okay. Yeah, right. How? What insurance? There, oh there are things they're like that people are not allowed to do because of the insurance. If you're appearing in front of a camera and doing anything. Yeah. And then you're talking about like, you have to be insured for everything that you do. And here's Geraldo Rivera firing a Tommy gun in front of the camera in a building that is not literally a gun range, just set up for it. Yeah. And there's people around. Uh, He's also hitting the plunger on an explosive, like the thing, like an Acme uh, Wiley Coyote thing. He actually drops the plunger on an explosive box. That was wild. And you see a chain of explosions go off because they're knocking down. I think that was the limestone wall. He literally drops the plunger. (laughs) I was trying so hard while watching this to like extract from my brain my knowledge of the outcome. Yeah. 
just so I could try to watch it through the eyes of someone who didn't know how this was going to end. And it's like, I can absolutely see how I would be completely into this. Uh, if I was I watching still this completely as an adult, into it. And I knew the ending. It was pretty good interweaving of the history with everything that was going on at the scene. I would say, again, I talked about the slant to his history. It definitely has an angle that feels very like Capone, big, bad, evil man, which he was. But at the same time, there was more that going on than that. You can add some nuance. He didn't really go for the nuance. That's fine. I mean, you know, you're, you're, both, yeah. you're both so stoked about it because the special left no room for interpretation that anything wasn't going to be in there. It was like the most hardcore media manifest destiny ever put on screen. <laughs> yes. They were like, definitely bodies, definitely money. Like, never like, we don't know. We'll find out together. Like, in, in, in our day and age, in all of us, when we do anything, and I find myself doing this all the time with myself and everything I do, which is like, I try to dial down everybody's expectations. So it's like, don't expect the greatest. I'm doing my best here. Under promise, this isn't going to be great. Yes, my friend. This was the opposite. Exactly. And I'm like, the nerve. The thing that really struck me from the outset is that I think he sets the stage of this all very well. Like the opening is if you talk about a hook that's going to draw you in, his opening kind of monologue in front of the Lexington Hotel is just very fascinating. It automatically pulls you in and then he starts to paint this picture of what the hotel was like back then he's like now you walk into the foyer in this entrance the floor would have been this and on the wall are these kind of paintings and men would be seated there and they'd lower their newspapers to look at you you didn't know it but it's capone's henchmen and like you're just you felt like you were in the hotel (laughs) as he's walking through this like ruined out hall of a building and like either through artwork renderings of what it used to look like, you know, like mm-hmm. like drawings, basically. He just, he really kind of paints this picture where you can almost imagine this moving history through this like now dead space. And I just thought that was so fascinating. His performance, the word that kept coming to mind for me was kinetic. Yes. Always very moving, much. especially at the early part. He's oh, yeah, always mm-hmm. moving. He's coming here. He's handing something to somebody. He's opening the door. He's gesturing to this place. He's going down the stairs. From a performance standpoint, it is riveting. Yeah, yeah. And even taking into account some of the additional little descriptors and things he would use to like, he totally slammed the neighborhood. That yeah. I'm like, bro, just things like if you had, if this were aired today, It's interesting to see how the sensibilities have evolved. I think that people would just use softer language to say where this is located. I mean, that's the one thing about Geraldo is he... he, This blown out neighborhood. He's definitely of a generation (laughs) where choosing his words wisely, uh, I don't still even think today is his forte. No, I mean, it, it is one of those things. I feel like, though, that this was taking place at a time where a lot of those sensibilities were were really, I mean, mid-80s, the language was rougher. Yeah. And so, you know, you just say stuff like that. And now you just try to, like, consider more viewpoints. Right. But it was just, it's just funny watching it now with all that in mind and trying to really put yourself in the seat yeah. of someone living in this time. It really forces you to do that. Ben, let's circle back to you. What you got? Speaking of the time, let's not forget this special solely exists to make money. Okay, this is not for any archaeological value, which is shown by the complete lack of archaeologists on site while we're knocking this wall down. But I counted, there are 13 commercial breaks 
in this thing. So that makes up a fourth of the program. As you guys a have lot, pointed yeah. out, it is heavily sponsored by beer, which is great. But um, I, <laughs> Rivera has all these like news breaks, you know, like right after this, like we'll be back and, and then we'll do this right when I get back. And I love, so after the 10th commercial break, he's like, we still haven't found anything, but we'll learn about this massacre after these commercial breaks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just so offhandedly like late. And you see, so as, as the show goes on, the commercials are more frequent later in the episode. And every time they come back, Rivera looks like he's sweating a little bit. And he's like, well, uh, the boys are hard at work and we're still down here. Um, what are those charges? Like, you can tell it's starting to get a little nervous, get a little worried that nothing's yeah. popped out yet. It was you really see fun. a trajectory. That boyish, like, exuberance definitely fades somewhere along the way as they, maybe it's around the time the limestone wall comes down and they just keep hitting barriers. But yeah, you definitely see a change in his uh, his energy and a little more of his, like, Doubt starts to creep in. He's already dreaming about the tequila he's going to be drowning himself in. You almost see him going through the stages of grief, right? Right. 100%. <laughs> By the time I got to end of that, like, I look back and like roughly two thirds of the program is a Capone documentary. It's just like historic yes. footage and narrative and like, here's who Capone was, which makes a quarter of it advertisements, which leaves mathematically about 10% of actually opening the vault, which I just want to call like, I don't know what to call it, the chasm, the hallway. It's not a vault. There's nothing in there. Wasn't a vault. Misnomer. Yeah. But like of what we're actually all here for, there's actually very little of that <laughs> during the special. Yeah. I'm sure that his brother, Ralph, once uh, Al went off to court and prison for tax evasion, I'm pretty sure Ralph, who was one of his top guys, would have- yeah. All of his guys, because that the whole enterprise kind of continued after Capone went away. It wasn't like, I mean, Al Capone gets arrested for tax evasion and, and goes to prison. Yes, he's no longer the boss, but the job is still there. The industry, the business is still there. Prohibition doesn't come to an end until 1933. So he went to prison a few years before that. And so... Yeah, there's still things going on in the organized crime world that would tell you, like, obviously, whatever was down there or in Al's house either was cleared up by the feds or by Al's people. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, it's like I don't know, There's a, there's got to be an envelope in his office that's like the Scarface protocol. And like, all right, boys, <laughs> if they get me, open this envelope. No, and the envelope... It's the, it's the snorky protocol. Sorry, the snorky <laughs> protocol. So it's like it's that makes it's it's tucked in a five thousand dollars suit's pocket, and then it's just like if they get any boys, like seal up this, close all this, send the money here, like destroy this stuff. Like I'm sure all of his operatives erased all as much as they could the minute you know they had that green light. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Come on. So one of my observations that I'm curious how it struck you all, like for this being, we'll call it the first time out with this kind of a thing. Yes, there was the Andrea Doria event. I feel like that it's kind of a slightly different category, but I think this was very well produced. Very interesting to watch. It was captivating. The historical piece, he had the experts. When they're in the vault, there's movement, there's activity, there's something going on. Like I thought like as a from a production standpoint, it was very well done. I'm sure. For sure. I I agree with that and yeah, watching this now, 2023, the only thing that made it a little harder to watch on my giant TV was just the fact that it was in an old aspect ratio. And yeah, it's right. from the mid 80s. Uh, but other than that, I mean, this would have been fascinating glued to my seat television while watching this as a kid. If I'd been a few years older, for sure. I also feel like I don't know that it warrants the level of 
embarrassment that is attributed to it. I don't think it does, honestly. I no. I, I it's think that's funny. a little bit of an overstatement, and I think <laughs> yeah. it's it's a funny thing to say, but I think it's one of those, like, it's a low-hanging fruit response of, like, this is the most embarrassing thing, and it ruined this. <laughs> like, there's just a – I think it, it lends itself to hyperbole, I think, a little bit in your reaction to it. It didn't seem like that big of a, a snafu. It sounds like that was partially created by Rivera himself. Like, it, you know, in the interviews with him after it, he was saying, this was the end, this was the... It's almost like a pretty intense victim complex with him after the episode. Like, this was the end of my life and no one would respect me and my career was mm-hmm. not over. And then, you know, who else, who among us or anyone listening to this podcast, the day after you had something bad happen at work, you had 22 job offers? Bro, you're the farthest from victim possible. Yeah. I think it's a good point. I think he was burned from being fired from ABC. And I think he knew that the people at ABC who did not like him, who were probably powerful people there, were eager for him to fail. Yes. And, you know, knowing he had basically his career on the line. Yes, you're right, Ben. We should all be fortunate enough to be (laughs) to have an embarrassing day at the office where, you know, millions of dollars are on the line. Yeah. At least it was a, a, a success in terms of viewership. But then, yeah, well, for your screw up, we've got 22 jobs for you to choose from. I think you guys make such good points because, I mean, he was younger at the time, kind of at the pinnacle of his career and trying to really make something of himself. And, and you know, he put everything into this. Yeah. And so I feel like if he had come at it with more measured expectations, he himself might not have dropped the ball or felt bad is bad after when it didn't pan out. But I almost have to wonder too, that if he didn't throw everything at this, if he didn't say it's all or nothing, I'm going for broke, I don't know that it would be as memorable. And so there's that as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that really jumps out of the screen at you is this man is excited. He has a discovery and he's going to share it with the world. And he's bringing you all in. I mean, he really did bring that. Well, imagine if they did find something amazing oh in there. Oh my god! I mean, imagine incredible. what his. I mean, yes, he he's successful. I mean, he mm-hmm. goes on to do a, a daytime talk show after this. Imagine what would he could have been like a news anchor on a like twenty twenty like a big show, right? Right, like, right. He, he would have been the next been, like Peter Jennings or yes, something. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Dan Rather kind of a person. Like mm-hmm. that could have catapulted his career to even higher echelon. So. Say what you will about the bro. He kind of put himself out there big time. He went all for it. And that's what a lot of people say. They're like, look, this dude had some cojones. <laughs> if nothing else, you know, he had the the stones. Speaking of putting yourself oh. out there big time, there's there's one segment I, I want to just talk about real quick. Okay. Which is the second longest segment in the whole two-hour special, which is about newspaper editor Robert St. John's Wild Night. This was so good. That was great. That was great. This beret wearing Gandalf beard mother. uh, Sorry, (laughs) different podcast. This guy, he he (laughs) told him this story that is mostly to quote. He's like, I was passed on from girl to girl at at Capone's brothel throughout the night. (laughs) He had a stack of fives and tens. Yes. Yes. So most of his story, and he doesn't talk about like how that was a bad thing or anything like that. He was like, so there was this awesome night at Capone's brothel. I was having a great time. It's, it's, this dude is nuts. And then, so talking about this brothel and Cicero. I mean, to be fair, he's only talking to the women. He's not doing other things. He's having, (laughs) he's paying them to 
to give the dirt. <laughs> yes. Right. Usually when I'm at a party and I'm just chatting with people, I, I recount it as I was just passed from guest to guest. It's usually what I say. That's what he says. Right. Okay. That's what he says. So then they re. So Capone, like, I guess he's writing out about it. So Capone sends his guys to go beat him up. And so they get cops to, like, reenact it on a corner. Like, they're out on the street and there's cops, like, standing all over the place. So it's a little bit like Rescue 911. Like, now we've got the cops, but this guy's reenacting it. And all this hush money and Capone pays his hospital bills after his goons beat him up and they're like, oh, I gave them bad info. They weren't supposed to beat you up. But like Oh, and then they asked him if he took Al Capone's money. Because he had all this money like at the end after Yeah, he's like, Oh, your your suit got ruined. He said he's peeling off hundred dollar bills. He's like, Your suit got ruined, your hospital bills taken care of, this, this, and this. And he said he didn't take the money, right? I don't believe it. He didn't take the money. You don't don't believe it. You think he did? Like you think Absolutely, he, took he did. He took that money. Totally took that money. Come on. So here's the thing that's crazy about that, How's he going to pay for ben? his next night at the brothel? Right. Here's the crazy nuance. He says he's crossing the street. This is in Cicero. He's crossing the street like at a four-way intersection. And this black car pulls up. He's like, it's either gangsters or it's the police. It's I know it's one of the two because they drove the same kind of cars. Four men get out. One of them is Ralph Capone, and basically he ducks into a ball in the middle of the street. He said there's cops on two of the corners, and they do nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he bought them. Right. He yes. owned the cops. So the cops are just standing there on the street corners while these guys are going to gun him down. And I can't remember why he doesn't get shot, but he survives. So that is a thing that Capone would do. Like as intimidation? Yeah. So there was a guy that he uh, had a rivalry with in uh, Chicago. His last name was Aiello. I can't remember his first name. But it was uh, this ongoing battle between these two. And Aiello was like taken in to jail for some charge. I can't remember what. But Capone stationed probably about a dozen gunmen on the street in front of the precinct waiting for Aiello to be Mm. let out so that he would see them when they came out. Do you think the cops did anything about that? No, because they were on the payroll. Oh, yeah, of course But that's the kind of stuff that Capone could really get away with. I mean, he had everybody in his pocket. And and again, that's what makes him the, the template of the organized crime mob boss is you see so many who came after him. That That is the thing is you buy the power and that protects you more than anything else. Mm. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me that he did that to, to that reporter. I believe everything that he said about what he encountered and what he did. I just think he took the money because I think he was terrified. And if you say no, I just can't imagine it. And after you've already been bullied and you've been injured and you're dealing with all this stuff, If Al Capone, the leader of the biggest crime gang in your area, is peeling off all this money off this huge wad of $100 bills that he pulls out of his pocket, yeah, you take that money and you walk away and you never mention it again. I was going to say, maybe if he took it and then was like, I donated it to some organization or whatever. Maybe he did that. I mean, mean, he probably would have felt bad about lying about that part too. But man, because he did say, you know, he wished he did. He's one of the few newspaper reporters, editors who was willing to go up against Capone. So I'm like, on the other hand, he was one of the few people willing to stand up to this guy and call out his business and what he did. Like, that's what got him in trouble in the first place. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I take your point, but like, I'm somewhat inclined to believe him. I will say that was another bit where like, 
Well, one thing I loved about this special is there was some very fascinating storytelling. And that dude's story, I was like hooked. I was just sitting there glued to the screen, listening to his story about this whole thing unfold. That was so good. Nobody could say this was a boring special because I think it would have been derided more. It wouldn't be remembered again if it was boring. Nobody would be talking about it today. Right. Ben, you you had lots of notes. We're probably like, what, a quarter of the way through? (laughs) No, wonderfully, a lot of us took uh, the same sort of things out of rewatching the special or watching it for the first time as myself. Uh, So, no, this has been a delightfully (laughs) comprehensive chemistry class. Well, I had a a few other funny takeaways from YouTube comments. So one of them was, I honestly feel it had long-term effects on Geraldo's career and was the great-grandfather of the term clickbait. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to that in contemporary culture, as well as this next one. And that was the story of how Geraldo Rivera accidentally created the show Storage Wars. <laughs> Storage Wars. That's so good. That it's so good true. <laughs> uh, another commenter said, came for the disappointment, stayed for the actually really cool history lesson about Al Capone. I agree. <laughs> nice. Yep. This is another good example of what media made Gen X so cynical about. Uh, (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. And then finally, my favorite comment, maybe the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, we did meet some interesting characters. We sure did. (laughs) We sure did. All right. I think we're about ready to wrap up chemistry. This uh, Whenever we drank, the the buzz, the high is starting to wear off. The fumes are starting to dissipate. My purple gin is all gone. Oh, the no. purple gin is gone. Uh, what do you say we head down to the cafeteria? Maybe get tequila drunk. Is it Taco Tuesday? It might be. And then let's just hope we awake tomorrow <laughs> in contemporary culture with multiple job offers. Yes. And uh, perhaps a little perspective on what happened to Geraldo's career, as well as this concept of sensationalistic television. Yes. I love it. The mystery of Al Capone's vaults will continue. Big Boy Caprice, Breathless Mahoney, Flat Top, The DA, Prune Face, Mumbles, Lips Manless, and The Blank are out to get the greatest detective of all time. I'm rubbing him out. I want him dead! Nobody touches Tracy but me. Tracy, Tracy. Tracy? You mind if I call you Dick? I was beginning to wonder what a girl had to do to get arrested. Wearing that dress is a step in the right direction. For a tough guy, you do a lot of pansy things. You're under arrest. Aren't you gonna frisk me? Hey, copper, maybe you wanna look before you leap. When it's time to fight crime, he's your man. Walt Disney Pictures presents Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy. Whose side are you on? And Madonna as Breathless Mahoney. Are you gonna make a move? Do I have to do everything? I'm on duty. Dick Tracy. I'm on my way. All right. We're in contemporary culture. How was lunch, you guys? Are you tequila drunk? Are you uh, uh Yeah, and it was like, there was a lot of uh, spaghetti and a meatball. Oh it was the, the Capone spaghetti. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, no, lunch oh, was man. delicious. I am, uh, yeah, tequila drunk. 
Uh, that's just, I love I love that thought of just well I don't love it just because it that sounds mean but just the idea of making a beeline out of there just to go across the street yeah and drown your sorrows like damn we've all been there right like we've yeah. all had that moment where you're like I'm going to this place for a very specific purpose <laughs> and yep. that's just where I am right now yeah look out Applebee's here I come I think he said too that he went up to his room after and just kind of like put the do not disturb on and just ignored the world like he he shut himself away and i'm like man i was like why were you so (laughs) yourself uh that was out of your control man i mean he hosted a show it didn't go where he thought it would but that wasn't his fault per se but again his career is on the line true and you know you mentioned ego his ego yeah. is definitely on the line as well. And I think he had a lot of naysayers who were ready to point a finger and laugh at him. They wanted that schadenfreude appetizer. Oh, yeah. lots of schadenfreude, <laughs> particularly of his ABC detractors and whatnot. So I could kind of understand it, especially, you know, to your point, he put his all into this. He did not go in half-hearted. He went in full tilt. And so I get it. Well, as we mentioned, he had 22 job offers. So despite all of that, I think his fortunes turned pretty nicely. By 1987, he begins producing and hosting the daytime talk show, Geraldo, which you mentioned, Allison, earlier. Mm -hmm. And that ran for 11 years. Now, this might actually be where a lot of people know Geraldo. Ben, are you familiar with this show? Do you remember Geraldo from Geraldo? Yeah, this is sort of like Jerry Springer before Jerry Springer happened, right? A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, they they overlapped a little bit, but yeah, Geraldo set that stage pretty hardcore. Oprah's out by now, Donahue, Sally Jesse, but I don't know if they got as sensationalist and edgy and controversial as Geraldo did. I think Phil did a bit. Okay. He would have like members of the KKK on okay. to uh then sit next to members of say a black church or something and they would like pit them against each other i think i remember seeing phil donahue do something like that okay but geraldo dialed it up more and his audience and everything they were a bit more participation based and i don't know if anybody else remembers this but one of my earliest memories of watching Geraldo was when, in fact, he had KKK members on the show oh, and yeah. things got violent and a chair got thrown yep. and hit him right in the face and broke his nose. Yes. Yeah. And I remember specifically seeing, you know, a big broken nose Huge and bandage. blood pouring down his face. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that was the kind of stuff that, you know, this was the perfect playground for a guy that liked to talk about Al Capone and dig up a vault that he might have had and kind of get his hands dirty, essentially. As, well, except he wasn't actually doing any of the digging. Right. Right. Whatever. Um, but he liked that, that sort of uh, suspense filled content. So he he really was able to hit the ground running and, and explore a lot of things on that talk show. For sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned, that show runs for 11 years until 1996. And then his career kind of goes off from there. I don't want to talk too much about it, but did either of you have any more about Geraldo that you wanted to cover in contemporary culture? Not more than I already said about having watched his talk show, or at least it was on the TV when I was around. I'll say I never set out to watch Geraldo. Right. um, But my mom loved watching Geraldo and all those talk shows. Yeah. And so I was steeped hardcore on that. And, you know, and then, yeah, the show ended and then he went off to other media and I'd see him, but I wouldn't like 
know what all else he was into at that point. Right. Ben, did you have anything else specifically about Geraldo's career? I mean, I'm trying to ride the rails here. Uh, Rivera's made a lot of really horrible mistakes in his professional career. He's really been out there and really been seen and visible, and uh, that gives him a great platform to definitely be heard. And uh, since we are in contemporary culture, what he's been heard saying is definitely going to be on the wrong side of history uh, and on, on the wrong side of a lot of people. He's trying to come back and redeem himself for some things in more recent like tweets and things like that, just to show that he hasn't you know, gone completely off the rails, you know, in general. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Everything you said, Ben. Peabody Rivera and Rivera of the 2000s onward and even 90s are two different human beings entirely. Very, very much so. He's a very complicated kind of a figure. Like, it's easy to paint him one way. But then, like, if you dig in and look at his, like, views on certain things or whatever, you're like, well, that's interesting. Why would he do or say the things that, you know probably fall into those uh, buckets that you're talking yeah. about, Ben. And again, we're being purposefully vague because this is not a show where we want to talk too much about like political stuff and all of that. You know, that's not really what our show is about. Right. I'll, I'll put it this way, just to bookend it nicely. 16 Candles holds it better than Gerardo Rivera. I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> wow. Okay. Dang. All ben right. is going hard. Yeah. Okay, everyone. It's weird um, science. It's 16 weird. Candles and then it's Geraldo and then it's Rivera. Rivera. That's, yeah. that's the yeah. He's gonna fa- He's going to fail the math quiz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, I think what's really interesting to talk about for contemporary culture is the impact of this kind of television having on TV going forward. And a few jokes have been made already. Storage wars, right? So reality television, I think, is one area. And, and I see this kind of as two aspects of reality TV. In a way, this is like a seedling or a proof of concept for reality TV. And this oh, whole yeah. idea that we'll reveal something on air. On one hand, you have the first aspect, which I would say is creating spectacle out of very little. Yes. And you see a lot of these reality shows do this now. Think of any final episode of Survivor, American Idol, The Bachelor. It's basically 90 minutes of buildup to a very flimsy finale, a reveal, a whatever, right? We're going to vote somebody off in 14 commercial breaks. We'll be right back. You know, it's that kind of a a clickbaity sort of approach to it. And so I think that aspect that, oh, well, we can actually keep people for two hours with very Very little, just retrospective and build up and anticipation and armchair predictions of, well, what's going to happen here? Now we talked to this expert. We talked to last year's winner, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you have that aspect of reality TV. And then the other one is like your storage wars. There's a whole segment of these shows that are about uncovering lost treasures, pawn stars, gold rush, right? The whole purpose of this show is to find this magical treasure with very little effort or through just miraculous happenstance or whatever. But we also know that those things are heavily staged. Whereas at least with Geraldo, you might be disappointed he found nothing, but guess what? He didn't just run down to a costume shop and throw a, you know, bowler hat in there and be like, this was probably Al Capone's bowler cap, you know, that kind of a thing. Or, <laughs> oh, this is his Dapper Dan brill cream. Dapper Dan? Dapper Dan. <laughs> oh, my God. He wasn't into fop. He was a Dapper Dan man. <laughs> I don't like fop. I'm a Dapper Dan man. Oh, man. 
Anyway, like, so those are two aspects, I think, of reality television that borrow heavily either from the content or the approach of this special. But I'm curious what you guys think as well. Modern day reality television, a lot of it owes its roots to previous um, writer strikes in Hollywood. Mm. You know, and one is going on as we're recording this Yeah, is, you know, in the absence of scripts, you make non-scripted content. And that is where shows like Survivor and, you know, Big Big Race. What is the one? Amazing, Amazing Race. race. Amazing Sorry. Race. The, big, the Big Race. The Big Race. Um, all these shows that sort of came to the fore and uh, really grew was just because we needed non-scripted content to sort of fill the void in the absence. I think shows like this, definitely the people that were scrambling for ideas looked back to things like this mm. and go, wow, we have a guy who was able to hold the sway of 30 million people for 90 minutes or two hours with nothing yeah. other than some historical knowledge. And he could hold them sway with the promise of a delivered thing. And it did great. And so that was Despite what anybody said afterward, as far as the money people are concerned, the network people are concerned, that is a money concept right there. And people will tune in for it for the same reason that people go and gamble every day in a casino. They lost last time, but there's always the chance that you could hit. So we're going to keep going again and again and again. And human beings just love that kind of stuff. Mm. So absolutely, I think that the formula for this show was a proven concept, even if it didn't deliver, because the executives know that doesn't matter. It's about if you can create the allure to get people there. Yeah, That's all you need. And so, yeah, the beauty of the concept was born because you had this very high profile journalist. This wasn't mentioned before, but he was married to Kurt Vonnegut's daughter. I mean, this is a guy who was also the new face of Latino culture in the media, because here's this Latino man who's like putting this face on. So he's he's not like your typical white guy. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that I think contributed to the success of that show. And they figure if you could get a similar personality to bring something like this, absolutely. It's a money printing machine if you're a TV executive. You know, riffing on that of, of what it inspired, you wouldn't think my hot take would come from PBS, but I think the hot take I got from, comes from what PBS positioned this as, which I've got to agree with. They, they said, so, quote, Rivera had inadvertently launched a no-news form of news, where instead of reporting on news, entire programs are about possible and hypothetical news. And so we all know about, yep. like, the 24-hour news cycle, and it's hard to imagine... What else could be in the top three of the worst things to ever happen to news than the no news form of news getting invented? You know, the 24-hour news cycle is a is a horrible pariah upon society where people don't learn anything but are stuck to a TV all day because someone might say something or this this boat is about to arrive and something's important about the boat. We're going to our continuing coverage on week two of this thing where the thing hasn't actually happened. And like in this special, don't get me wrong, like we did learn about Capone. That's fine. But what it what it inspired more of like just what you said, Allison, your advertisers can make a million dollars and your viewers are no smarter or no better for what happened during watching that news all the time. And there's no news. We're not informed about yeah. anything in this special. It, and it, it drives me nuts. But I agree. I think that's a huge influence from this Capone special. 
And the mm. only thing that other people would learn from that is maybe not to spend as much money. Right. Because, yeah. again, Chris, I don't know if I, I'd look for this. Did you find anything about the budget or the amount of money that was spent making this? Yeah, I have no idea. That's a great point. It's not something I had thought about, uh, nor did I find any information. Yeah, what was spent? Don't know. And if anybody out there knows, maybe they'll uh, reach out and let you know, because I'm very curious about this, because that's the one thing that I would say at the end is that they had to pay for all that labor. There's no way they're going to do anything like that again, but they will pay for non-known union scale nobodies to be in front of the camera and deliver some they've they have found you know oh bring in people we don't know look at shows like the bachelor or survivor and shows like that you don't have to pay them anything or look at any like you said anything on the cable news networks it's all just people that are just sitting there speculating in front of a camera that's all they're doing is speculating. They're not actually doing anything. <laughs> and Allison, you talked about cable news programs. You had mentioned to me um, in our discussion leading up to doing this show about like there was a, I think it was an act that was passed around. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. Right. There was the the Telecom Act of 1994. 94. Okay. And, and do you know like broad strokes? Can you say what that act was about? Oh, man, I didn't brush up on this. But basically, there was a whole fairness doctrine and media and all this stuff. It was a lot more regulated back before this, where, you know, networks had to uh, adhere to certain standards uh, as far as how they delivered news and the truth and and everything. Well, that was all wiped away. Um, It sort of is, is largely responsible for deregulating the entire telecommunications industry uh, and the news industry. This special came before that, but I would say once those regulations were peeled back, you could really ramp up doing this kind of thing with the news. Yeah. Yeah. Because at this point, it really merged, news became entertainment. And we could debate that, you know, as far as what that's done to us is, well, it's not really a debate in my brain. I I know what it's done. (laughs) We could, but is it a merited debate? I don't think so. But I do think that that was the extra grease on those gears. Because once you start rolling that kind of stuff back, then you've really got a wide open runway for a whole plane loads of BS to just (laughs) land. (laughs) I just wonder, though, to Ben's. To Ben's point about that, like the whole 24-hour news cycle, like what would happen if you have a, a show like this that existed, you know, when those regulations were in place, but we don't hit that point where now that act is passed. So would we have this extreme aspect of it where we would have this news cycle? Like you can't say that, you know, this whole special and this idea didn't have some impact on it, but it seems like that deregulation piece, once again, is like opening the floodgates. We talk yeah, about right. the marketing deregulation to children in the early 80s and how that gave rise to all of these commercials for sugary treats and toys and consumerism for kids and all that. Yeah, you just have to wonder, I don't know, what it, what it would have been like without that, but... uh It's one of those things, there's always like, in this day's world, we are living with a constant barrage of things being thrown at us just left and right, we don't get a break, it's constant, you know, so this came out in a day when we still had very little, it feels almost like a like an early seedling that was planted that we didn't know what kind of poison tree it would sprout. But you know, it was still very much in the early germination phase after it was planted. And then yeah, rolling back those things brought in the sunlight, and the water and all the things needed to just make it like, shoot for the sky. 
and here we are. So yeah, so I believe could... it's uh, Reach for the Stars. Oh, sorry, yes. Reach for the Stars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it ain't me. See, yeah. One funny bit of culture that I thought was great in The Simpsons. There's a season five, episode one, Homer's Barbershop Quartet. Yeah, episode. Did yes. you guys see this? Yeah. Yeah, actually, a shout out to my friend Adrian, who pointed out that uh, reference when I mentioned this earlier. (laughs) So if you're not familiar with this episode, it largely flashes back to when Homer uh, led a barbershop quartet called the uh, Mm -hmm. B-Sharps. I love this lineup. Principal Skinner, Apu, and Barney. Uh, (laughs) Beautiful. I always love it. I think Barney has this like great baritone voice, if I remember correctly. But anyway, there's this part where Homer's at the piano doing a writing session, and he starts singing... There was nothing in Al Capone's vault, but it wasn't Geraldo's fault. And then he gets mad <laughs> oh, and then crumples up the paper. But just that's I, again, only the way Simpsons can do it is they reference everything. That's the joke, of course. So naturally, they have a Al Capone's vault <laughs> TV special reference. That's awesome. I'm glad they got, that, that, was a, that was a deep cut for Simpsons. I like that they went there. It's good. Yeah. I do find it interesting, too, in terms of culture and, and how – we view things through a different lens now than we did then. I think it's it's also interesting to think about this in terms of Al Capone as well, is that that part of the 20th century that he was active and died and then going through time, he was seen as this big evil menace, this public enemy number one, which Geraldo says throughout the show a couple times. But these days, Al Capone is not viewed quite the same way he's he's almost viewed as is sort of a iconic american figure more than a big criminal he did very bad things but you go to chicago you can get sweatshirts with al capone on them i mean al capone's on all the souvenirs he's you know the subject of all these tours he's the subject of so many books and so many things that he people look more at some of the more altruistic and and charitable things that he did in addition to the murdering and the if you don't buy my bootlegged liquor mr speakeasy owner i will blow up your shop which he did multiple times uh so it's interesting to see the juxtaposition though because enough time has passed that it's sort of rubbed away the sharp edges of al capone much the way that i think that we now are sitting here going was it much of a laughing stock i don't think it was that bad so i don't know if i'm doing the same thing am i rubbing away those sharp edges because of time and all the time that's passed about geraldo in this show like we have with al capone and his deeds I don't know. I find myself kind of finding like the way the culture views it versus the way that it was and the way that that changes over decades. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting. Well, you know, I I think we've done uh, we've done a lot here, folks. The limestone has been piled and I think the dust is starting to settle. (laughs) And there's only one thing left for us to do. We have to follow this underground tunnel system to math class where we can take stock of what truly lies within the mystery of Al Capone's vault's television special and determine how it holds up today. Into it. Let's do it. Okay, we've made it to math class, and now we're here to count the artifacts, i.e. booze bottles that have been found, to see how this special holds up today As customary, we either give our guests the first or last say on the matter, and we've decided that the first person to shoot their opinion into the wall with his Tommy gun (laughs) to make words out of bullets 
is our guest, Allison. So Allison, here's your Tommy gun. We've gone through the safety protocols. Fire away. How does this thing hold up today? What are your thoughts? Well, Spit the bit, kid. Meh. See here, you mugs. You'll never catch me, Captain. <laughs> That's amazing. I think, and I come at this with strong bias for, again, was established early on in the show. I love logistics. I, lo- <laughs> I love import-export. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, love, I love studying the history of mafia organized crime, not because I'm, I have a fascination with criminals um, and true crime. It's not really that. It's, it's more like just this aspect of like the way parts of society fight against each other for certain things. And, you know, looking back and, and why people like Al Capone came to power was sort of to fill this vacuum that we create difficulties that we create for say immigrants and their families coming to this country or, you know, and and the things that they have to do to survive and they band together and they come up with these gangs and these things. And we, you know, things like that to me make, Shows like this will always be a draw. If if this came on today, if I saw that there was going to be this big special about Al Capone and they're going to dig something of his up, oh my God. Or any other gangster, we're digging up Bugsy Moran's, you know, footlocker from his gym that they discovered or something. <laughs> I would be there. And, and to follow this up too, the reason I think these things still hold up well, look at the launches we do for the space program, even to this day. The launches that um, SpaceX was just doing, or we look at, for instance, this, oh, there was some guy that did some kind of um, skydiving from orbit. And I can't remember his name. This was oh, a few yeah, years sure. ago. And Red Bull, Red Bull sponsored yeah. it. And they take him up in a, you know, a balloon type thing. And then he skydives down from the edge of the planet and things like that. You don't know if this guy's going to die or not. And so stuff like that is such a huge draw still to this day, these kinds of shows where you bring somebody this thing that is live that we don't know how it's going to end up. There's a part of our brain now that goes, there's probably a 10 second delay because unfortunately we saw a part of Janet Jackson's breast during the Super Bowl uh, halftime hey, this is show. A family podcast. And, so now hey, hey. and now we're not allowed to see anything anymore uh, live. Now everything has that <laughs> buffer built in, but <laughs> this kind of entertainment absolutely still holds a draw and will continue to because human beings are hugely curious creatures and they're hugely drawn to sensationalism like moths to a flame and that is not going anywhere anytime soon especially when there's money to be made Mm. bam well done you've covered this wall in bullets but but ben there's three more so you get this (laughs) wall over here Point and shoot, my friend. Yeah, what you got? What, the target uh, range is still thoughts? alive, you're saying? As That's I, right. As I giddily take my <laughs> critic's uh, Tommy gun into hand. All right, everyone clear out. Clear out. Let's go. Benjamin's ready to fire. <laughs> hey, you, Tom. Get out of there, Tom. Baby, All right, baby. let's go. Uh, ben, go. <laughs> what you got I'm going to break us? my math class into three parts for the three right. elements of the special. The special, Rivera, and Capone. Oh, Okay. So the special itself, I find enjoyable to watch. It is entertaining. I do like watching Rivera with glee, like to just be excited to be doing what he's doing. Like he's having a great time. And it is, it's uncomfortable, but almost in an entertaining way to watch it start to take a nosedive in the last like 45 minutes where Rivera's like, I hope we find something. I don't know. Here's a massacre. <laughs> I will be back. Like, that is sort of entertaining. Um, but the it special is. itself is entertaining television. I can't take that away from it. 
I think the part of the, the, the show, and I know our, our tastes have all changed as, as audiences, but I do think it's a huge missed opportunity to actually hear the people who know what they're talking about. Like, there's only such a, only a very brief mentions of these people who did the studies and the seismology and bouncing sound waves inside and trying to scan it. And so it's, I mean, again, I come from the museum world for most of my career. And like, archaeology is an amazing career with people who are very smart, who work very long and very hard to get where they are and are very passionate. And they're not in this at all. Barely anybody who knows what they're actually talking about is in this thing. And I feel like it's such a, it's such a, I guess it's kind of where his career goes to talk shows which are horrific as a cultural entity of like, it's just for me in many ways, I know it's entertaining, but it's so empty. It's empty brain calories. It's eating Funyuns. It's the Funyuns of television is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> so it's just a missed opportunity yeah. there, I feel like. And the last part of this I already touched on it, so I won't go really deep into it. But, you know, as PBS said, like, this is the birth of no news. And we're here to specifically talk about the segment, but the child that came from it is such a Cthulhu world-destroying monster. <laughs> The 24-hour news is not good for anyone unless you're an advertiser during it. And it's just a yes. horrible social ill. Uh, and mm. this is one of the parents of it. I, I'm not going to blame it on Rivera on this too. That's insane. But it's a contributing factor. Sure. So Rivera, there's a huge gap here. There's a blind spot. I don't watch Rivera. I've never watched his shows. I don't. I, there's a lot of context of his life that I'm missing. All I know is specifically what I researched getting ready for this episode. And to me, it's it's a bummer to see where his career started and where it went and where he is now. So, I mean, we're talking like late 70s, early 80s, brought attention to the mistreatment of people with psychological disorders and work with John Lennon on a fundraiser, tackled controversial topics as a debate platform that others weren't comfortable with on Goodnight America, first one to give a name to AIDS on network news. I, and actually, personally, I thought he exhibited some strong values when he like spoke out against the network for not doing the Kennedy-Monroe story, specifically because he thought the network's president was a friend with Kennedy and didn't want to like besmirch Kennedy's name. Like, that took a lot of guts. A lot of the stuff was really good. Agreed. And so, but for me, you know, he calls Capone in the special the godfather of organized crime. And for me, like, Rivera is the godfather of trash television. It's kind of how I feel about this. <laughs> but he's, unfortunately, over the last few decades, couple of decades, he's come out so many times defending accused sexual assaulters, and he's been accused many times himself, and he always kind of jokingly shrugs it off like, news is a flirty business. And that's a quote from him. Mm -hmm. He's he's lied about the Afghan war and published our troop movements that like threaten so many people. He very confidently spread misinformation during the COVID pandemic. He has said a lot of public racist stuff in his career over and over and over again. And again, that's that's all just what came up of like the Rivera Wikipedia page of like controversies when it came up. I haven't watched the rest, but like from where he came to where he went is like for me a tragic downfall to see. He started so well. Rivera, you could have been our like our hero. But man, he became to me a, a pretty bad figure. Which bad figure is a great segue into Capone. So I mean Capone <laughs> yeah. is sort of like one of the main reasons Chicago has this sort of corrupt reputation that it does. I mean, it's one of the things that's helped define the city for many people. So I think that's just interesting that it goes back to Compone. Obviously, like, Allison, you've detailed really well. Like, every gangster we ever see in media is kind of Capone-inspired, which is, I mean, right? This is this is a huge figure of contemporary uh, gangster life. I don't know what you call it. I, I, I don't know a good way to put it. Gangstering? What is the verb of gangstering? Gangs Criminaling? Crying? I think that criminal and criming. There we go. That's what that's what Gen Z. But would I think say. you know, if I'm really like, <laughs> we, we just came out of contemporary culture and math class, and I think what's important again, 
the beef of this special was a documentary about Al Capone. We learned a lot about Capone. And I think that's really relevant contemporary culture. I mean, you know, Capone was this really well-known public figure. To many, he was charming. Some people even adored. But he was very openly a criminal. Everybody knew it, but just kept getting away with it. Because he had this sort of like Scrooge McDuck money that you just keep getting out of all. He had paid all the right people. I mean, this is what, you know, after the St. Valentine's Day massacre, he was dubbed public enemy number one. But after all these years, what it came down to was you can't run from the IRS. There are details. You got to do your paperwork and uh, you will get caught eventually. I, I, this, is, this is my phrase I'll leave it with. They didn't get him on the bootlegging. They didn't get him on the murders. They caught him on tax evasion. It's like a pair of socks. You can only launder them so many times before they fall apart, just like the lies about money. Oh, nice. That's my contemporary math on it. Ben, you shot up all the other walls. I'm going to have to shoot the floor now. Uh, that was beautiful. I, I feel like you. I have a silhouette of bullet holes like left behind around my body that I like. I walk away and it's just like my That's body in bullet so holes. Sweet. That's awesome. That'd be sweet. Yeah. Listen, I, I love that we all approach this from a different angle. So I've got like a different approach, but I think like everything we're all saying, I completely agree with and is true. I just, I have like, I think a third take on this, which is I think kind of fun. So good. So I really enjoyed revisiting this special, the hype, the spectacle, the anticipation from Geraldo's deaf narration to his kinetic performance. You could see there was an authenticity to what was unfolding before our eyes. And what's great is that in a way, Geraldo's journey was our journey as viewers. Because he may have had the mic and the crew, but all of us were together in the adventure chasing the rainbow to its disappointing end. And that's what I want to focus on. The disappointing end is what I actually find fascinating. Because maybe time has jaded us. We've talked about this. Maybe schadenfreude is too irresistible. But I actually give the guy credit for taking a big swing and failing forward. Mm. Because the American fairy tale is one of constant winning and success and brushing failures quietly aside for no one to see. And I think Corrado made himself vulnerable on a national stage by taking a huge risk and striking out. And for that, I do applaud him. Yeah. Because I do think we've socialized failure as the worst thing possible in our culture, even though so much invention and creation is born from it. And what should be a learning opportunity is treated like a death sentence ripe for mockery. And I think that's the wrong narrative to tell. And so that's where I think a lot of this that you've been talking about, Allison, why was he this laughingstock? I think it's where a lot of that comes from. Speaking of narratives, I just found the history and the interviews riveting. The people who knew Capone, they were in their 80s by then. And they've since passed, but their stories were captured for generations to follow that may not have been captured otherwise. And as we mentioned, like several of them were really expert storytellers. I was very captivated by that. So I don't know, maybe the treasure all along was the friends we made <laughs> along the way. I love it. Or at least maybe. the stories they shared, the history they preserved, and that little nugget of dogged curiosity that makes us marvel at mysteries and wonder beyond reality of what lies beyond and what drives us from within. Wow, wow. Well done. that's very poetic. <laughs> snaps, snaps all around. I think if Geraldo had said anything even half as thoughtful yeah. upon the revelation of the empty vault, 
that yeah. you just listen. Said. I wrote this he, down he under pl- zero pressure. That dude was on live right, television. Right. He would be our Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, he is our you know trash. Our Funyun. Uh, <laughs> our Funyun. Uh, yeah, our, our Funyun television. Uh, yeah, our Funyun man. Yeah, I like that. That's great. <laughs> Allison, thank you once again for yes. joining us on the so show. Great having we you back. Could not have had the great to be here. Enjoyable journey we did without you. So thank you so much. Where can listeners find you and your work if they'd like to learn more about Allison? Well, if you want to get a little more of this action, uh, head over to my podcast, Ding Dong Darkness Time. I talk about things that probably wouldn't be as fitting on this show just because it's not a family show. It's, It's a little darker, a little crazier. And Chris is on there on occasion. So good times to be had on there. I like to say it's a fun approach to dark subject matter right like that's it that's yeah. the ding dong part of the darkness time is you get a little bit yeah. of the, the lightness to the darkness i'm not the i mean i'm i'm definitely what you hear me talking like here is how i talk on the show i'm i'm definitely not a uh the goth kid you know swaying you know, I pay to see it. I want it. I'm interested. Um, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you can listen to me there every week. I got a bunch of episodes, and um, other than that, you can find me on Twitter, yammering away, um, Miss Ali D, over there. So that's my main hangout. Okay. On the web, I, I do want to expound on a few of those shoutouts, if you don't mind. So there. Allison and I did a couple of episodes that were a lot of fun. If you like this idea of mysteries, we did a segment, Mm -hmm. 10 cities, 10 mysteries, and we did 10 countries, 10 mysteries, where we took your top listener countries and cities, and uh, we plucked some fun mysteries from those locations. So if you enjoy those, there's four episodes in total uh, talking about some of that. And who knows, maybe your city or country are a part of that sampling. So I wanted to call those episodes out specifically because those were a lot of fun. They are very fun. Uh, your most recent novel, The Other Mrs. Miller, is also out there wherever you buy books. Yeah, shush. You're not self-promoting. I'm doing it. And then lastly, <laughs> I mentioned on this podcast before, but very fitting for this topic, on LeVar Burton Reads, that's right, everybody, LeVar Burton of Reading Rainbow, we covered that earlier this season. He actually reads one of Allison's short stories, John Dillinger and the Blind Magician. John Dillinger, another famous gangster of the era. Also Chicago-based, right? Yes, very much. That's like a hurricane of connections. That's two episodes. It's a fantasy gangster mashup. Tells the story about a uh, the actual last night of John Dillinger's life, but I add a fantasy overlay yeah, to fun. the whole thing. It's very fun, and and I, I think you can find it to read it. I mean, why would you? That's like, why would you read David Sedaris when oh. you can hear David Sedaris? You want to hear oh, LeVar Burton read the story. Come on, come on. LeVar Burton did such a good job that I can't even believe that I wrote the story. Yeah. I just, I'm listening to this, and I'm like, uh, I definitely didn't write that. Um, but he adds music, and there's a whole production, so... The great production of it. A lot of fun. <laughs> All right. I had to I had to call those out since you did not. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. But yeah, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you guys, I can't believe it. We're not only at the end of the show. We are one episode away from the end of season three. This is like right before final exams. It's the last week of class, but there's still a little mystery left. The mystery, of course, is what is going to be our last topic? of 80s high season three benjamin what do you have in store for us i'm so honored that i get to have this seat of such prominence to get to pick the last episode of the season i don't know if this was the thing for you guys but junior year 
was probably one of my hardest years of all education, not just high school, but like junior year high school. Like that's all your exams and you're applying to college and all your AP stuff. And I, like, it was really hard. And so, you know, now that our junior year is finishing on 80s high, like I'm ready for a big sigh of relief. And, and, you know, I feel mm-hmm. like time-wise between these two episodes, that's kind of when finals are going to happen. So my episode gets to take place during the TV wheel-in time where everyone's just <laughs> hanging out till yeah. graduation. Pressure's off. You're having fun. So I wanted to go out like <laughs> on a just relaxed, celebrate. The summer's coming on a good high note. I'm just looking forward to running out of the school and playing with all of my wonderful toys. And what can I do with that? And I thought, you know what? It's my time. There's so many times I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do a topic that everyone else knows I know nothing about. Nope. This is me. This is all me because summer's coming. I earned it. All right. So on the final episode of season three, 80s High, we're going back to 1989 to relish in the pure awesomeness that is one of the greatest summer blockbusters of all time. Oh, my gosh. Batman. Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Kim Basinger, and Billy D. Williams. Uh, we are going back to the Dark Knight. Guys, oh, I am so freaking excited. Here's the thing. Here's what's big. Goodness. We talk so much on this That's podcast so about when, when we try and reboot and bring things back and like how that tanks and whatnot. Michael Keaton has gotten back in the bat suit. Yes. To reprise this role with the same cave, with all the best vehicles in The Flash, which is going to come out right around the time our Batman episode will come out. This summer in June, June 16th, 2023. Very prescient. Good pick for that reason, sir. Exactly. And Allison, I was so excited. I just saw this two days ago and knowing you were coming on, I had to hold on to it. For some reason, I couldn't find out why Stephen King has already seen The Flash which has Michael Keaton coming back as Batman. And he said, to quote, as a rule, I don't care a lot for superhero movies, but this one is special. It's heartfelt, funny, and eye-popping. I loved it. Wow. Oh, my. Okay. I mean, Keaton was the main draw for me when I heard about that. Uh, It is honestly easily in my top five of all the Batman movies. Mm. It has a huge, huge nostalgia for me. Uh, the summer that it came out, I remember everything I did that summer because of that movie, and I saw it a billion times <laughs> in the theater. So I oh, love it. I love oh, that you picked that, man. and I cannot wait to listen. Awesome. I'm already slipping into my bat suit, uh, you guys. I don't know if you hear the latex and the rubber kind of squeaking as I'm trying to like wedge my foot <laughs> down what, into what the legging. You're working but... on over there. Someone who's gonna do the the Jack Palance impression. Oh, Bobby, on my number one. You, <laughs> my number one. That was really good. God. <laughs> Guy. Actually, That's right, guy. you need to do a, an impression of the Joker doing an impression of Jack Palance's character. That's the best. <laughs> yes. That's, That's the best. Oh my god. That is it. Jack, that is it. don't forget your lucky deck. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh. And on the one and the line from that I quote the most often says, I don't get to be I'm not gonna be on that episode. I have to say it is a where does he get those, those wonderful, wonderful toys? toys? I just love I love it. I love that Joker. I love the music. I love oh the God. the look of it. The Batmobile yeah. is incredible. Oh yeah, it's great. You guys never mess with another man's rhubarb. All right. Oh. Oh. So well, good. Put on a utility belt and crank your Batmobile into first gear as we dance with the devil in the pale moon night on the next episode of 80s. Eye. <laughs> 
Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.